Hashem Nasev and Atzliach, Shil Torah. Oh Hashem, always great to be here. I got uh, some prepared questions that you guys, Oh Hashem, got me for me. And we're also up to number 82. Number 82 in the Musar Pekavot series. Oh Hashem, we had a very good shiur last night. I woke up out of it. It was, uh, helped me do tshuva a little bit for the night. Uh, hopefully other people did too. And uh, the amazing thing about this Musar Shiurim is that it doesn't matter how many times you listen to them, it's always brand new. It's always you're going to find out something new. Uh, and that's the beauty of Torah. That's the beauty of Torah, where uh, the difference between Torah and all of the secular knowledge in the world, whether it be science, math, English, history, or so on, is that uh, once you learn something about history, once you learn something about math, once you learn something about anything in the secular world, it's stagnant, it's, it remains the same, nothing changes. One plus one will always be two, and anyone says otherwise just needs to go to a mental institution. Uh, on the other hand, Torah knowledge is dynamic. Torah knowledge is constantly something that you can build on. So that's why the uh, sages explain that there's 70 faces to the Torah, not that there's chas v'shalom, uh, no one knows what's going on, so there's 70 different opinions. But there's 70 different understandings from every, sing- every single verse, every single um, paragraph, every single excuse me, story, every single word even. Uh, there is literally 70 different understandings, minimum. Um, but the sad part is that in our generation, we still don't really know the value of Torah. Uh, Amen. We still don't know the value of Torah. We still don't know the significance of Torah, the magnitude of Torah. Uh, people think that if you know you read a couple of books, you read the Chumash, you read a couple of Gemarot, you read maybe a few Midrashim, and that's it. You know Torah. And uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, many times people uh, misunderstand what the Torah really is. And unfortunately, sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's the teacher's fault. Sometimes it's the system's fault. It's a systemic problem uh, that pretty much everyone is at fault. You can't necessarily pinpoint and say, ah, he's at fault, she's at fault. You can't really do that. Sometimes, as we were talking about before the show was to, uh, started, sometimes it's the uh, parents' fault because they don't want to send the kids to Yeshiva. Sometimes it's the kid's fault because he doesn't want to learn. Sometimes the teacher's fault because he doesn't have patience. He doesn't want to teach. Sometimes the school fault, school's fault, because the school is run by people that are ignorant and are racist and only accept a certain type of Jew in the yeshiva. So if you're a convert or you're Sephardi or you're Ashkenazi or you're Yemeni or you're something that they are not, they literally act like it's Nazi Germany. Only to, to their own brothers, though, is the problem. And they don't accept them. Or even if they accept them, there's always like, they're looking for you. They're looking for you around the corner. I have at least two people that I know that were kicked out of yeshiva by the same rotten principle many years ago. And uh, to this day, to this day, these two boys need to make do tshuva because they were religious when they were in yeshiva. They kicked them out of yeshiva both for bogus reasons, because I know both of them personally. Uh, they kicked them out of the yeshiva. And, uh, of course, you know, why would you stay religious if you just kicked out of a religious school? 
If you got such a, as a young kid, 11, 12, 13 years old, you don't know anything in your life. You get kicked out of school. Your whole confidence is destroyed. You just lost all your friends. And uh, now you have new friends. Who are your new friends? They're not Jews. So now you have a serious problem because now the kid is off the derech. He's not interested at all in a religion because all he saw is bad things from the religion. And uh, you have yourself a very, very serious problem because now, 25 years later, they're still off the derech. Now, incidentally, I actually spoke to both of them today. Uh, as Hashem would have it, I spoke to both of them today. Baruch Hashem. Uh, both of them are starting to make a little bit of progress, one more than the other. And uh, I'll tell you a story, because sometimes, you know, people think that I make this stuff up, or like, I don't know, I have, uh, I have some type of like uh, vivid imagination. Uh, but you know what? Some of these stories, you really can't even make it up, even if you had a vivid imagination. So before we start, oh, you have the list, or are you still uh, writing it? Okay, by the end of the year, let me know the list. If was to everyone, you got it. Thank you, thank you. It's game Okay, so before we start, we'll do the fuas lema. The fuas lema to Michael Cotto, Amparo Bolufe, Ruven Joseph, Ben Rivka, Sara Lea Batzara, Gladys Nunez, Melissa Norato Suarez, but Miriam Suarez, uh, Rachel and Monty Sandler, Luardes Rensoli, Yoshua Michael Ben Hadassa, Patricia Valmana, Michelle Valmana. Sonia Suarez, Nicole Valmana, Augustine Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel Betancourt, Liliana Antebonia, Gilberto Meneses, uh, Jacqueline Rojas, Idaya Garcia, Pablo Lorenzo, Miriam Batsara, Jocelyn Morejon, Adas Vasquez, Enid Vasquez, Suncha Vasquez, Sara Gutierrez, Diego Hernandez, uh, Dvora Bat Mercedes, Judah Ben Dvora, Miriam Batmazal, Rose Low Bat Nora, uh, Elisheva Chaya Batsara, uh, Amber Bat Noach, Rose, Rose Lore Bat Noach, uh, Zachariah Bet Ben Anat, uh, Levana Batsara, Sara Bat Levana, uh, Doris Batjora, um, David Ben Nasriya, uh, and all of Am Yisrael, the ones that I remember, the ones that I don't, the ones that are here, and the ones that are not, Bezat Hashem, will have a refuah shlema, refuah tanefesh, refuah taguf. So, so, Baruch Hashem, in, in, in a world we live in today, um, I'm glad to tell you that the prophecy that the Navi says, that at the end of the days, the world will be specifically mentioning Am Yisrael is going to be very hungry. Now, unlike many of the horrible prophecies we've talked about in the past, this is actually a very good prophecy. Because the hunger that the Navi is talking about is not the hunger for food. It's not one of the curses that's mentioned in Parashat B'chukotai or Kitavo or in several other places in the Torah, in the Tanakh, it's not mentioned in any of those places. This is a different level of hunger. This is a different type of hunger. The hunger that we're talking about is the hunger for truth. 
the hunger for Hashem in our life. And I see these amazing stories every day. Someone sends me a message, someone sends me an email, and you know, Hashem continues to try to cheer us on because this is not easy. You work day and night and you feel like you haven't even started. There's always new, there's always more. And, uh, but Hashem cheers you on, He gives you some results. Little ones, big ones. Say, oh, I got a message, a really nice message today. Some, you know, wonderful family donated $100. And along with the, on our website, you have the ability to also write us a message. And it was really a heartwarming message. Said, uh, you know, thank you for your teaching. We love you. And um, for me, it was, if you will. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, um, said, don't let any of the fakers get in the way. Because the truth that you teach took us took us us out meaning themselves out of being fakers we used to be fakers we used to be fakers ourselves but the truth woke us up so to me this this is this is as good as it gets because you see the people that are really searching for the truth they just never had it they just never had it no one offered it or they just didn't search for it enough or it wasn't important enough, or it wasn't time, or whatever it was. There's a systemic problem. There's a systemic problem. And we can't necessarily pinpoint, oh, this is the one that's fault. You can't say it's the rabbis only, because the knowledge is available. Meaning that if you want it as a student, if you want it bad enough, you can get it. If you don't get it from this rabbi, you know that the rabbi behind him there's several hundred books, and in some cases, several thousand books. Instead of depending, you know, your entire Olam Abba is going to depend on whatever lecture he chooses to tell you, whether he's telling you about Alachot of Etolgim, or Shlom Bayit, issuing uh, for the 50 millionth time, or it's a, uh, you know, about some holiday that, okay, great, it's all wonderful, but if it's not shaking your heart and you want it, why don't you, after the shiur, let him finish the shiur, after the shiur, say, can I borrow one of the 3,000 books that are just collecting dust. Can I borrow one of them and read it? You'll be more than happy. Be more than happy to give you one of the books to read. Pick up a book and start reading. You want to know the truth? Pick up a book and start reading. So you can't really blame the rabbi only. Also, you have to understand that today, because many big shuls have boards, and in many cases, small shuls also have boards, there's 10 members, 9 of them are board members. Ten people in the shul, nine people are board members. And the only guy that's uh, not a board member is because he doesn't come all the time. You know, and uh, so there's a, a board members, board members. So what happens? So the rabbi, the only one that knows anything, the only one that knows the truth, if he actually tells it to the people, the board's going to fire him. So he's also limited. His hand's behind his back. Even if he's a man of truth, it's not enough. Why? Because you also have to have an extraordinary amount of emunah. Now, it's hard to have an extraordinary amount of emunah 24 hours a day when you also have that emunah also is depended on by the five little kids that he's got at home. Okay, he may have emunah. Maybe his wife doesn't. Or maybe he has emunah, but maybe they don't know what to do. Or, you know, they're waiting for a better time or a better day and so on and so forth. The Yitzhah works in different ways to convince us that one day it's going to change. So you can't blame the rabbi only. On the other hand, 
when someone becomes a rabbi, they take on a responsibility not only as the owner of this knowledge, but also the disseminator of the knowledge, meaning you're not allowed simply to learn for your own sake. Someone, the Gemara says in Masechet Abu that someone that learns Torah without an intention to teach is considered as if he doesn't have a God. Why? Because the point of learning Torah is to sanctify Hashem's name. Why would you want to sanctify Hashem's name? Because He's extraordinary, He's the best. So in essence, what you're trying to do is you're trying to learn about Hashem in order for you to emulate Him, to show how great He is to the world. The number one character trait, if we, you know, we're allowed to say it according to this, the character trait that Hashem has is that He's a giver. He only gives and never receives. Meaning that if you now took the number one gift that He gave to the world, which is Torah, you took this gift and you're not going to be able to share it, you, or you choose not to share it, you're an ungrateful person. You're, in essence, you're not reading the Torah for the sake of emulating Hashem, you're reading the Torah for your own sake, for your own selfishness. And that's not Torah. So, even though it's not easy to be a rabbi, it's definitely not easy to be a kila rabbi, it's not an excuse. Go up to Shemaim. The Gemara says someone who doesn't say the truth to his keilah in Shemaim, they, they judge him as if he's the one that made all the sins. This is why the Rabban Gamliel, when he picked two major uh, major tzaddikim, they were poor as dirt. He picked them to become big rabbis. Overnight, they went from being poor as can be to being big rabbis. They told him, no, no, maybe, you know, we don't want it. He goes, what? You think that I'm uh, giving you these jobs because I feel bad for you? Because you're poor? No. I'm giving you a job that's, in essence, the equivalent of being a slave. You're equivalent, why, you're being a rabbi, you think well, you're rich, famous, and uh, it's all great. You're 100% a slave to the tzibur. You're a slave to the community. Why? You have no day, you have no night, and if they mess up, it's your fault. If they mess up, it's your fault. That's why the gdolim, like Rav Tzion Abba Shaul, every time someone would tell him, Kudarab, do you know anyone that knows, that could give me an answer about this, this, and this? Oh, yeah, yeah, go to this one. Go to someone else. Go. He, would always, he knows all the answers. One of the Gdoleador. Yeah, yeah, go, go. He's great. He's a great rabbi. Go ask him. Go ask him. And one of the students asked for the Rav. You wrote a book about it. Why don't you give him the answer? He goes, no, why, why? If he wants the answer, he reads my book. Now, otherwise, why do I have to, why do I have to go to Gainom Fam? Why do I have to go off the, why do I have to go to Gainom Fam if he doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen, it's my, they're going to ask me, how come you didn't teach him? You understand? So it's not, you're not off the hook if you're a rabbi and you just keep quiet. On the other hand, in the schools, okay, you built a school, you got the funding, Baruch Hashem, I don't think there's any uh, shortage of uh, money. Everybody gets money one way or another, sometimes they get it from big donors, sometimes they get it from this, from that. Now they're trying to, certain programs, they're trying to get it from uh, different states in the United States. The point is, it's very rare to hear that a uh, Torah academy or yeshiva was closed down because of money. That's not the case. But there is plenty of stories of the students leaving. Plenty of stories like that. There's plenty of stories of kids, even if they attended the yeshiva, they weren't really interested at all in what's happening there. And sometimes it's because the teaching is not good. 
Sometimes because the, the teachers themselves are not interested in being teachers. They're interested in making a living, they're interested in making money, and this is the skill set they have. So they choose this, but in reality they're not passionate about what they're doing, so they're the worst possible person for the job. It's, very, it's better to bring someone that's half an ignorant, but it's passionate about doing it, so he's going to study and get to know what he's doing by the time he gets in front of the class, than someone that has a bunch of knowledge but doesn't really want to share because he thinks that he's supposed to be some big rabbi, or he thinks he's supposed to be some big sofail, some big uh, writer, and this is just like a in-between jobs type of gig. You know, so sometimes you have the wrong teachers, or better yet, sometimes you have yeshivas that, uh, you know, they don't really care about the actual process of educating these young, innocent souls. They don't realize that the future of mankind as a whole, as well as Am Yisrael, is all dependent on these little babies. These little three-year-old kids, four-year-old kids, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, all these little babies, the whole world is dependent on them. The whole world is dependent on them. But some of these people don't take this into account. Like, nah, listen... Let's try to cut the budget. So instead of hiring qualified religious Jews to teach the kids, what do they hire? They hire people that you know don't know anything. They know how to attend. They know how to get there. They know the, how to follow a GPS system to get to the school. As far as religion, they don't know anything. How do you know? First of all, you see. You, you, see, you, see, you see the appearance of some of these people. They don't even look Jewish in some cases. In other cases, you have sometimes they hire people that are not even Jewish. They're not Jewish. No, but they're only teaching English. Okay, so why do we have to learn English from a non-Jew? What if this English non-Jewish teacher is uh, on the side as a gig, a missionary? Why do we have to... Uh, why? We don't have any Jews that speak English? No one? That's it? All of us became stupid? No one knows how to speak English? No one knows history? No one knows math. We're all retarded. We don't know anything. All we know is, is the five books of Moses. That's it. So, you see, there's a systemic issue here. Why it's cut corners here, cut corners there. For what? Sometimes it's for money. Sometimes it's for other reasons. The point is, the schools also have an issue. But it's not the problem. It's not alone. It's, you can't pinpoint and say to the school, oh, that's at fault. Why? There's plenty of people became Talmidei Chachamim coming out of those same schools. With the problems. Why? They wanted it. They wanted it. And plenty of kids that went to these schools that don't have any problems, have great teachers, great uh, curriculum, great everything, but some kids came out rotten. Why? The parents are rotten. The kid goes to a religious school. Teachers are great. Curriculum is great. Everything is great. He comes back home. He sees Abba and Ima in a bathing suit. Abba and Ima pretending like they're on the beach 24 hours a day. Abba thinks it's okay to walk around in his, in, his, in his briefs with no shirt on. He thinks he's on a beach. Ima doesn't know where clothes actually... She thinks that clothes only belong in closets. She doesn't know how to be modest. You know, you know, Shabbat is just another day. And really, okay, we're sending our religious kid to school, but at home we're people. That's the da'a of the reform, by the way. The people that started the reform movement... Um, said, be a Jew at home and a person outside. And the very same people today are marrying homosexuals, goyim to Jews, dogs to Jews, all types of things. Even the goyim are making fun of us about this. Because even the goyim don't have such retarded people. This is why Hashem said to Avraham Avinu, 
And also in this week's parasha, he says it to, to Yaakov Abinu. Your children, your descendants are going to be numerous, countless, extraordinary, like the stars or the sand. Why the stars or the sand? When they're spiritually enlightened, they're the best. When they're not, they're the worst. They could be like the stars or the sand. So you can't really necessarily blame the school now. Now you have teachers that are wonderful, but the kid has to pick at some point. He goes home, he sees Abba and Ima completely disinterested from Judaism. Instead of having Dvar Torah at the table, they're talking business on Shabbat. Instead of a, uh, you know making Torah, this is the number one thing, oh, let's send the kid to basketball classes or karate classes and Thanksgiving parties and uh, this office party, and talk about the stock market, and everything except God. God's for school. It's not for home. So the kid, he's initially he's confused. Which one's right, my teacher or my Abba? My teacher or my Ima? He's always going to pick, the, he's always, always going to pick Ima and Abba. Why? First of all, he sees them more often. Second of all, they give him money. He wants something, they give him that. He's always going to like them more. It's very rare that a kid likes his teacher more. It's usually there's something wrong with the, with the parents. So the kid is going to say, look, my teacher's full of it. He's, uh, you know, he's wearing his black and white uniform because that's his uniform for school. But, you know, my dad is the best. My dad's the best. He's a, he's, he's a real person. He's the same all the time. And he knows the truth. There's no way that my dad is wrong. The teacher's wrong. So the kid's confused, and those kids that come from such confused households where they go to yeshiva and they come back to a secular house or a half-religious house or a non-serious house, they end up either being fakers themselves or complete atheists. Many, many times they end up becoming complete atheists because what ends up happening is that they see two completely distinct ends. On one end you have someone that's looks extremely firm, extremely religious. The other one thinks it's a joke, pretty much, or at least treats it like a joke. And kids are always like a sponge. You tell them something, they're going to remember it forever. And if they see Abba and Ima, you know, they're like selectively religious. They're religious during the holidays or when people are watching. So the kid is going to say, ah, it's really, everyone knows. Everyone probably else does the same thing. It's a joke. So the kid's like, nah, I'm more open about it. I'm going to treat it as a joke also. So you have a lot of confused people. But thank God we have a God. And the reason why is because Hashem Barach told us that if you look for me, you'll find me. If you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul. In Sefer Dvarim, Hashem Barach makes a promise that if you actually look for the purpose of life, you look for me, you look for Hashem Barach, you'll find him. You'll find him, there's no question about it, you'll find him. But now, once you find him, if it doesn't obligate you, you didn't find him. If you think you found God, but nothing changes, you didn't find God, you found something else. You found Abu Zarah, you found the cult, you found the today's style, you found, uh, you know, some, I don't know, fake nonsense Kabbalah centers that they teach the average person pretending like it's real Torah. You know, people unfortunately have such little clue about what Torah is and what it's not 
that they think that it's okay to go to these Kabbalah centers and they think that they're learning Judaism. They're being taught by sometimes non-Jews. Half the class, if not more, is non-Jews. They're being taught things that have really... No one in the class itself even understands what they're talking about. It just sounds cool. It sounds like you know you can fly in the air after the class. And the reality of it is that the only obligation is that you just have to pay. Otherwise, you don't have to do anything. Just pay. And people think, oh yeah, you tell them, oh, you're religious? Oh yeah, I go to Kabbalah Center every week. And the reality of it is that it creates so much spiritual damage to people that it's very, very hard to fix it. These Kabbalah centers and these fake Kabbalah, mystical Judaism, they want to call it, creates so much damage that it's very difficult to fix. It's much more difficult to fix a mind that's been broken by one of these fake teachers than an atheist. It's much more difficult to fix someone that's been going to these nonsensical fake classes, being taught by heretics, to sometimes many heretics, sometimes by choice, sometimes by ignorance, It's very hard to fix it. Why? Because you literally have to pluck everything they know out. You can't even fix it. You can't even fix it. There's no foundation. Whatever is there is rotten. And I've had several students that have tried to come to the classes and they've come and they come and they come. And what they see is so different. What they hear is so different that it shell shocks them. So unless they're literally a person of truth, they can't hold up. One, two, three classes, either they break or they come full force. Either they become full force or they can't handle it. Why? They've been going to Kabbalah Center nonsense, being taught that all you have to do is just attend the class, pay the fee, talk about things that no one understands, all types of philosophical and mystical things, believe in certain spirits and powers and times and certain days and certain hours, all types of, you know, it sounds like witchcraft. It doesn't even sound like anything that's part of Judaism. And there's like a half of a half of a half of a percent of truth tainted with the rest of lies. So they think, oh yeah, but didn't you mention something like that? Yeah, but in a completely different context. So now, all of the teaching they had for a year, two years, in some cases, some of these people have been going for class for a decade. But nothing changed. They're still not modest. They're still walking around half naked. They still don't keep Shabbat. They still don't keep kosher. They still don't keep any of the laws. And if the, they keep any of the laws, it's purely by coincidence. It's not because of the Kabbalah Center. No one in the history of mankind has ever done tshuva because of the Kabbalah Center. That's not the goal there. The goal is to make it a business. And the business is open for all. For filthy, disgusting people like these celebrities that you know present themselves naked on, on stage on a daily basis. Or it's for innocent people that don't have a clue and think this is Judaism. Doesn't make a difference. Jews, non-Jews, missionaries, non it doesn't make a difference. Everyone and all are welcome. Why? You all have to pay a fee. And no one ever changes. Nothing ever happens other than becoming more crazy and spiritually damaged. Nothing ever happens. Nothing, it doesn't get anyone closer to Hashem. It just gets people to become confused. But no one asks any questions. No one really cares. Why? It doesn't obligate them. As long as you pay the fee, everything's okay. 
Now they come to a class like this, and there's no fee. And if they want to donate, great. And if they don't, no one really cares. They want to donate, donate, don't donate, don't donate. No one, no one ever says, hey guys, from now on, you have to pay. Nothing. No, there's no donations. Already, something's different. Then next thing you know, you start hearing some things. And every single five minutes, you hear something new that obligates you to change. Oh, I'm not allowed to wear no clothes. I'm not allowed to wear my birthday suit all the time. I'm not allowed to eat everything that walks. I'm not allowed to act a certain way. I'm, you have, every five minutes, you hear a new law, a new thing that obligates you to change. Obligates you to change. Obligates you to change. And now, your world is turned upside down when you hear that all of these obligations are, the, are from the Creator and not from the teacher. So, for better or for worse, regardless of whether anyone's been going to these classes or knows somebody has been going to these classes by these heretics, show them this. Show them this, and I'm more than happy to debate any of them. Uh, and they can provide their sources, and we'll provide our sources. Uh, not because I care for debates, and I'm not even talking about public debates. They can be public or not public. But simply look at the truth. What's the foundation of what they're teaching? Where are you going? What's the goal? Where are you start and where are you going? Is the goal of the world to wear red strings? Is that what Hashem created the world for? To wear for us to wear red strings and uh, celebrate, uh, you know, uh, Donation Tuesdays, or uh, or is it uh, to serve Him because He's the King of Kings? So that's that's the that's the main thing that you have a systemic problem that's even outside of the school. It's not just in the schools; it's outside of the schools. It's not just problems with rabbis; it's also problems with people that pretend to be rabbis. Now it's gone to such a horrible stage is that it's almost difficult and in some cases impossible to know who's Jewish. It's hard to find out who's Jewish. You can, I, I have a guy that was going to a uh, synagogue and for a few years, two, three, four years. And... Uh, you know, quiet guy who he looked very ultra Hasidish, hat, looked like uh, the typical Chabad, for example. Everyone, was nice guy, whatever, but anytime they would uh, ask him to do a blessing or do anything like that, he didn't know what he was doing really. But he knew the movements, he had the clothing, everything was, I mean, he looked like a perfectly normal Jew. But he didn't know much. He looked like a rabbi. As far as, nah, didn't know much. So after a while, a couple, you know, Jews are curious people. So a couple people start asking questions. Hey, you know this guy? Where's this guy? This guy. I'm surprised it took so many years. So I said, oh, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. Him. So where you from? What do they find out? And five minutes later, he's not even Jewish. He's not Jewish at all. Nothing. No, not process of conversion. Not uh, talk, nothing. Zero. Zero. He just decided one day, I'm going to be Jewish. Like he thought he could just be Jewish just by wearing black and white, growing a beard that's for free. So at least you don't have to invest any money. So it saves you money actually now. And you wear this black and white, and you're Jewish. That's it. You open this book, you make these strange movements, 
You're Jewish. What difference does it make what it says in the book? You're Jewish by wearing the clothes and going like this. You're Jewish. He looked more Jewish than everybody else. This is not one case. There's several of them. There's one guy actually in Miami. Is it Miami? Yeah, I think it's in Miami. Everyone knows he's not Jewish. But he's been going there for almost nine years. Nine years he's been going to the synagogue. They don't know what to do with him. They feel bad throwing him out. I mean, the guy's part of the Keilah. Nine years. They ask him, why don't you convert? Oh, my wife's a missionary. The wife's a Christian missionary. He lives two lives. This craziness. You don't know what's going on. I'm telling you, Abutai, you have no idea what's going on in the streets right now. You have no idea. You guys are all innocent. You all have your lives, your families. You have no idea. This is the news. You have no idea what's happening in the world today. You don't know what's kosher. You don't know what's not kosher. You know who's kosher. You don't know nothing. You have certain people calling themselves rabbis, but they're applauding the goyim. Like the one we talked about yesterday. You have all types of strange things happening. Well, the key is, is that Hashem Yitbach left us each and every single one of us the same instruction set. There are no two instruction sets in Judaism. There's one. The single instruction set, it's called the Torah. The Torah itself has multiple parts. It has the written Torah, which is the five books of Moses. Then there's an extension of it, which is the rest of the Tanakh. It's another 19 books. That's the written Torah. So you have five books of Moses that were written by Moses through prophecy from Hashem. And then you have the other 19 written by different prophets, King David, King Solomon, and so on. After you go through the written Torah, you realize after you just read the first verse, that you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so it says, Bereshit Barai Lokim et HaShamayim v'Taaretz. In the beginning, Hashem created the uh, heaven and the earth. It's like, oh, that sounds great. Was it a story? Is it a story? He's just telling us a story? Because if he's telling us a story, it's not really that good of a book. Why? Because you just jumped after Bereshit, after you, you know, you, you created the world, you have Adam and Eve, they messed up on the first day, and then you jumped 500 years. What happened? I mean, it's a lot of time. I want to know what happened during those 500 years. Then you have, okay, there's uh, you know, little details of what happens over a period of 100 years or so. And then boom, we jump another few hundred years. What happened in those few hundred years? And then again, another thousand years. Like, whoa, hey, why are you skipping? Slow down a little bit. We're still, we're still on the first day. I'm still trying to figure out what Bereshit is. Why are you skipping to 1948 when, uh, from creation when Avraham Avinu was born? Relax, No. That's because Rabotai, it's not a storybook. Because if you look and you fast forward all the way to the end of the Torah, the five books of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, the entire book, entire book, you have Bereshit is a couple thousand years. The entire book of Deuteronomy is five weeks. So you have one book that's a couple of thousand years and one book that's a few weeks, a little over a month. This is not exactly how books are written today. Maybe you need an editor. That's because Rabotai, it's not a storybook. 
Zohar Kadosh says, and also Chazal say it in other places, in the Midrash and several other places, anyone that says that the point of the Torah is to give you a history of the nation of Israel, loses their right to live. Meaning they have no right to live at all. Because it is as far from that as can be. Each and every verse, each and every pasuk, each and every single paragraph, each and every character, each and every single story, each and every single alakha, each and every single event of any kind is there to teach you a life lesson. And that life lesson could be dynamic, meaning today it means one thing to you, next week it could be something quite different. It could be applied in a different way. Just like you, Le'avdil, you can use glue. Glue! So as a little kid, when you're a little kid in the yeshiva, you glue a couple of pieces of papers, put the menorah for Hanukkah on a piece of paper. Here, Ima, look at my menorah. Ima sees the thing is crooked. He says, yes, Chazaku Baruch, my son, Chazaku Baruch. What, it's the most beautiful menorah in the world. In the back of my mind, I can't wait to throw it out. Well, whatever, I'll put it on the fridge. Why? Because the kid's cute. Now, why is it cute? Because he's five. Now, if your uh, 35 or 40-year-old husband brought you the same thing, Brought you the glue with the menorah. He came from Wall Street. He came from uh, uh, CVS or wherever he works. He says, honey, look, I made a menorah for us. You say, honey, sleep outside, please. <laughs> Go sleep outside. Go sleep outside. I'll, I'll send you the divorce papers. I'll send you. But it's the same glue. Different times. Even more so, that same glue can be used for different things. The Torah can be applied in different ways. The parasha that you read this week is going to affect you one way. Bezat Hashem next year, same time, you read the same parasha, it'll affect you in a different way. That's you see that the Torah is divine. It's dynamic, it's divine. In essence, means that it's a moving target and it's customized to you. To you specifically. You that are watching, you that are sitting. All you got to do is just read it. But now, since you don't know what you're talking about, because you read the first few verses and you're like, oh, okay, Belashit, what's the big deal of Belashit? And you, oh, there's something called commentary. Commentary, that's the oral Torah. That's part of the oral Torah, the Midrashim, the commentary by our great sages that were not called great sages just because they were great as people or great in money or great in any particular thing other than Torah. That's how they were evaluated. And they weren't evaluated by their mothers with biased opinions. They were evaluated by the entire generation because just imagine how many people wanted to write commentary. Who doesn't want to write commentary about the book of God? Who says we're going to accept it? So for someone to really truly understand the significance of each one of the names that you see next to every single Tanakh, Every single Chumash, you always see Rashi. You always see Onkelos. You always see these amazing names. What, no one else had an opinion? Yes, many had opinions. Many had knowledge. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't Rashi. It wasn't Onkelos. It wasn't. It wasn't Ramban. It wasn't Rambam. Many have ideas. Even today, there's plenty of young and old people that have their own ideas, their own Chidushim. As a matter of fact, the Holy Books say, that there is actually countless chidushim, countless insights, new insights in Shemaim that belong to each one of you. 
that belong to each one of you, and no one is ever going to get them other than you. No one is ever going to get those chidushim and bring them to, to light and bring them to the world other than you. Which means, if you don't work hard enough to bring these chidushim, they'll never come to light. So get working. Get working, this is part of our Torah. But it's still not Rashi. It's still not Rambam. It's still not the foundation. That's oral Torah. So we have the commentary. The other parts of the oral Torah, of course, we have the explanation. Not only of the verses and what's the hidden meaning behind everything, but also we have the Mishnah and the Gemara that explains different aspects of Judaism, the mitzvot, how we got them, where we got them from, who said this, who said that, different teachings about Musar, ethics, mystical teachings. You also have books like the Zohar, a collection of books like the Zohar, which part of it is the Kabbalah. Then you have the Shulchan Aruch, you have Mishneh Torah, which came before the Shulchan Aruch, and the Shulchan Aruch is based on Mishneh Torah. That's taking out the Rambam, and Mishneh Torah took out the laws. The, the uh, Mishnah took the laws from the written Torah. Then the Gemara explained the Mishnah, how we got to what the Mishnah says, because the Mishnah minimized it in the fewest possible words as possible. In their generation, they were able to understand what three words meant. You know, it could mean 50 books in three words. But generations passed, we deteriorated. So he said, okay, we have to explain to the world what these three words really mean, how we arrived at everything. So now you see that these three words are explained over 50 pages. That's the Gemara. But now, not the entire Gemara is laws. There's sometimes there's stories, Sometimes there's historical lessons. Sometimes there's scientific facts by Jews that are divine from Hashem. Sometimes there's scientific things by Goim because they were the experts. And that's why anytime someone says, look, the uh, Gemara made a mistake in science by saying the, uh, uh, the moon revolves around the sun, the sun revolves around the moon, the opposite of what it is. Look, it's not divine. Whoa, whoa. If you look at who wrote that, it's not a Jew. We depended specifically, the Jew that wrote that specific thing said, we got the information from the non-Jews. Meaning, they're not experts. If we got it from Hashem, we say we got it from Hashem. That's never wrong. That's never wrong. But if we got it from someone else that was the expert, fine, no problem. If he's wrong, he's wrong, it's not our fault. But that's the oral Torah, so we have the Mishnah was explained into the Gemara, but now we have stories, we have historical facts, we have scientific facts, we have medicinal facts, all different types of things, arguments, debates, all types of amazing things. I mean, once you get into the Gemara, which takes a while, takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of sweat, but it's the highest level of Torah. Once you get there, they're like, okay, what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? The law. Now, if everyone's going to have to learn the entire Gemara to know what the law is, you have to learn the Gemara many, many times to figure out what the law is. So the Rambam made it simpler. He just took the law out. No stories, no opinions, no, this is the law. He took the law, and this is the law. Fear God, love God, and so on and so forth. All the 613 laws that we have in the Torah, he took it from the Gemara, where the sources are, and he wrote Mishneh Torah. Yad Chazakah. But then, years later, I think maybe 400 years later, approximately 350, 400 years later, Rabbi Yosef Karo, even took the Rambam and minimized it even further as far as explaining it even further, applying it to the current times at the time further. Most of the Shulchan Aruch comes from the Rambam. Most of it. Not all, but most of it is there. 
So that's again also the oral Torah. But then you have many, many other books written during that time, before that time, after that time regarding Musar, regarding other mystical teachings, other things. These are all part of the oral Torah. And what I'm describing to you right now is not even 1% of 1% of the Torah. This is not even 1% of 1% of the Torah we have. If you look at the Torah we have, I mean, for example, you just look at the library that Rav Ovadia, Allah Shalom, had. Some estimated to have over 60,000 books. 60,000 books just he had. It's not all of the books in Judaism. All the books in Judaism, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not a few million of what we have. Now what we have is not all of it, because the Gemara in Masechet Avodah says that the Mishnah about Avodah about idol worship, that Avraham Avinu used to learn hundreds of years before we got the Torah itself, before we got the written Torah, and all of the oral Torah and so on, in Mount Sinai, the Mishnayot about Avodah Zarah that Avraham Avinu had. Some say were there was four hundred sections. Some say there was six hundred sections to this to this Gemara that he had to this Mishnayot that he had. What we have today, what we got from the remains of Rabbi Akiva's students, is five. Five chapters, five sections. Meaning that Avraham Avinu's just tractate of Abu Dazarah, tractate of Abu Dazarah, was more extensive than our entire Shas. Now you think, oh, so we don't have anything. Hold on a second. If you look at the Gemara, now there's obviously different versions of uh, you know commentaries on it, but famous one is from Art Scroll, has English and uh, Hebrew on it. Also has it in French, has it in Spanish, and I think it's a few other languages. But the the point is is that there are seventy three of this type of book. This, I believe thirty six masechtot, thirty six tractates of Gemara. But since each tractate is multiple books, there's seventy three of this. Seventy three. Now this book, you see, it's very very thin paper, very thin paper, and it's tiny handwriting. It's not like your school books where the handwriting it's like. The whole page takes three words. It's tiny little words. Tiny little words, meaning each, each page is very, very extensive. So you have, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven hundred pages. Yeah, probably five hundred to six hundred pages in each book. Now, if you do the math, the Gemara itself has just a little under 2,700 dapim. But dapim are double, meaning it's Back and forth. So each each daf in the Gemara is the front and back. Unlike the books of today where you page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. In the Gemara, it's 1A and 1B. 2A and 2B. So each daf has two sides. So there's approximately just a little under 2,700 dapim, which means approximately 5,400 pages. Now, since there's commentary to understand, Understand what's going on since we don't know what's going on. It's commentary. So there's 73 of these books. If you do the math, I did a, just a brief math just the other day. You're talking about somewhere in a neighborhood of 21,000 to 24,000 pages. 
regular pages that we're all used to in every other common book, 21 to 24,000 pages. Now, the um, Rav Chaim Zalman from uh, Volozin used to say about the Vilna Gaon, giant of giants. Wanted to learn from him, wanted to honor him, and so on and so forth. But one of the other Chachamim said, for the Rav, of course, the Vilna Gaon is a giant. But your brother is also a giant. Why don't you go to your brother? He knows the Torah. Rav Zalman uh, from uh, Volozin. It's a giant. Go to him. Why do you have to go to Vilna Gaon for? And he says, my brother, yes, he's a big Talmud Chacham, giant. Before he would do anything, before we would do any mitzvah, let's say, for example, netilat yadayim, simple mitzvah, netilat yadayim. Before he would do the mitzvah, netilat yadayim, in his mind, he would review every single place it's mentioned in the Torah. We're not talking about just the written Torah. We're talking about the oral Torah. We're not talking about just the Gemara and the Mishnah. We're talking about all the Chachamim, all the Rishonim, all the Achonim, all the commentaries, all the commentary on the commentary. He would review it in his mind and count and mention it where it's mentioned before Netiyah Dedayim. Before he would do a mitzvah of anything, he would review it. Oh, where is this mentioned in the Torah? We can't do this in the computer. Type in. Netiyah Dedayim will take us 20 minutes to figure out what the computer says. He was doing it in his head in moments. Moments. Eventually, he saw this is making everyone else wait for him all the time. He says, oh, this neder that I made, this vow that I made, that before I, you know, to, in order to sanctify Hashem's name, I really study his Torah and really know what I'm doing, not just do it like a robot, chas v'shalom. But it's making my family wait a lot before I do, before I eat, before I drink, before Birkat Amazon, before uh, anything, everyone has to wait for me until I finish. So I have to cancel this neder. Oh, but neder is also in the Torah. Where is it in the Torah? So the rabbis are like, oh, hold on a second. When you finish finding out how many times it's mentioned in the Torah, neder, come back to us. Took him three days. Three days he's counting different, all different, countless places where the neder, where a vow is mentioned in the Torah. He comes to the Betin after three days. He goes, okay, I have it. These are all the places of where it's mentioned in Torah. Neder, here, neder. But now I have to test you guys. This if you're going to cancel my neder, at the very least, you need to know where it is. And his brother says, this very same giant that we can't even understand at that level of intelligence. That's a computer can't even be a student of such a chacham. The computer can't be a student of him. We can't. His brother said, if that same if that same giant, just a few hundred years ago, if he learned a thousand more years and was a thousand times better than he is right now, he still wouldn't be half as much as the Vilna Gaon. Can you understand such a thing? I can't. I heard this story, I can't understand the first one. Forget about the second one. He won't be half as much as the Vilna Gaon. We're thinking, oh, they call him Vilna Gaon because they liked him. It's like today. Every guy with a beard and a belly, Sadiq Balair. 
The, the, the righteous are coming to the city. Do you know him? Have you ever read any books? Did he write any books? Does he know how to speak? Does he know how to write? Does he know how to read? You don't even know if he's Jewish. <laughs> or just anyone with a beard and a hat and a beard and a belly. That's it, we're finished. Tzadik Balail. And he goes like this. And he goes like this. That's been, of course, requirement. Something he's doing in the middle of the street. So, here you have the Chachamim giving us a little taste of what a real Chacham is. We can't fathom this level of intelligence. We can't fathom this level of wisdom. But yet you have people in this generation that don't even know basic level Judaism. I don't agree with the Vilna Gaon. I don't agree with the Rambam. I don't agree with Rashi. I don't agree with the Gemara. Yet. They have a different Chidush. I have a different I have a different understanding. I don't think they're right here. I don't think they're right here. The level of chutzpah that we have in this generation is that every time you hear somebody make these comments, say, oh, it's for sure the end of times. Why? Gemaraim Masechet Sotah, page 49, says, chutzpah tizgeh. What's chutzpah tizgeh? At the end of times, you're going to know that the Mashiach is coming. Why? Because the chutzpah, the, the obnoxiousness, the lack of shame that people are going to have, is going to get to new levels. New levels of chutzpah. No level. It's chutzpah. It doesn't even make any sense. You little guy, you little whatever you are, you're you don't agree with Rambam. You don't agree with the with. with. So now you see that the Torah is so vast. It's so extraordinary, and this is just the parts we have. This is the parts we have. We're all upset for a moment. Oh, we only have five Mishnah, five sections of Abu Zarah. Avram had so much more. That's five sections. That's five sections. If anyone even knows half of it, half of it by heart, they're already considered big deal. You understand? The Torah is extraordinary. Now, why do I tell you all this? As an introduction. Because if we understand what we're dealing with, it becomes easier when the obligation comes along with it. If you understand the value of Torah, the significance of Torah, the the eternal nature of the Torah, the divinity of Torah, then it's easier to accept that when the Torah tells you, you have to change to change your lifestyle. You have to change your character traits. You have to change your clothing. You have to change your language. You have to change your hobbies. You have to change your mindset. You have to change the way you do business. You have to change the way you parent your kids. You have to change the way you think. You have to change what you look at. You have to change everything. Everything you're doing naturally, wrong. You have to change. Once you know the Torah is as great as the ocean... And even greater, okay, we got something here. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos came to Rabbi Akiva. Or Rabbi Akiva came to visit Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos. And Gemara, it says, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos was very upset. Why didn't you come visit me in so many years? This is over 2,000 years ago. Meaning Vilna Gaon is just a few hundred years ago. Vilna Gaon was not even enough to be a student. A student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva... Because to be a student of Rabbi Akiva, you have to be able to revive the dead. Forget knowing Torah, knowing how to do a lot of amazing things. You have to be able to revive the dead. Someone's dead, alive, live. 
We could just maybe spell the word dead. Maybe. That's suffix. What language? How many languages can you do it? So, you have someone that wanted to be Tamit Chacham, want to be with Rabbi Akiva to revive the dead. Now, Rabbi Akiva, his rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Okinos, Rabbi Eliezer Gadol, was upset at him. He said, Rabbi Akiva, Akiva, why didn't you come visit me in so many years? So I was busy, you know, I was learning, running the yeshiva, 24,000 students, that's so easy. It's not so easy. He was very upset at him. He said, I have so much Torah to teach you. He goes, oh, I know, I know, Kvodara, teach me now. What can you teach me now? How much Torah is there? How much Torah do you know? This is his teacher. He says, if the entire ocean, 72% of the globe is water, the entire ocean was ink, and all of the trees turn into pens, and all of the land turn into paper, it would not be enough to write the Torah that I know. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinah says, all of the trees were pens. All of the ocean was ink, so you're never running out of ink. Land became paper. Not enough to write down the Torah that I know. And the Torah that I know, the Torah that I know, Rabbi Elizabeth ben Okuno says, his rabbi was Rabban Yochanan. The Torah that I know is not even a fraction of what my rabbi knew. What did your rabbi know? What, what, what did he know? What did Rabban Yochanan know? He says, comparing my Torah to my rabbi's Torah is like if a dog comes to an ocean and takes a lick of the water. He comes to an ocean, 72% of the world, he takes a lick out of the water. Does anything change? Have you noticed? That's my Torah in comparison to my rabbi. And my rabbi, his Torah is nothing in comparison to his rabbi's. You see, the magnitude of Torah mentioned by the ones who knew Torah. Okay. It's easy to become obligated when it says, hey, you have to change. Now once in a while you have, a person has merits. Has merits where Hashem doesn't only want you to change, but He wants you to change now. So one of those two students, you remember I told you, those two students, you guys still remember the original story? Still with me. Those two young studs that got thrown out of the yeshiva when they were young kids and went about their lives and over 25 years have passed. And Baruch Hashem, they're both trying to do tshuva. One is doing better than the other. The one that's doing better than the other is really a superstar. He's got a brain that's unbelievable. Just that he's got to get over some of these different things. I mean, you have to literally rewire the whole thing. Baruch Hashem, he's already studying Gemara, he's already studying different things. Baruch Hashem, he's doing it. But, he's not there yet. So, he's doing some mitzvot, but not all the mitzvot. What mitzvah are we, we're talking about? What do we have to do? What do we don't have to do? We're still learning. We still have to figure out, do I believe? Do I don't believe? We're still in the beginning stages. But his, his brain is advanced enough that if you just give him basic level Torah, it's not enough. You have to give him complicated stuff. So anyway... He's, Baruch Hashem, has been learning, and he tells me, listen, Baruch Hashem, he watches the lectures, he's going to enjoy the story. He says, listen, I got to tell you, I don't know what you're going to make out of the story, I usually don't believe in this type of stuff, but I don't know what to do. I have to tell somebody. He says, 
I uh, have a plant. You know, I have my little library in my house. I have a plant in this library. I've had this plant for years. For years I've had this plant. And the plant, you know, you have it for years. Usually the same little whatever it is. Nothing changes. So I don't know what's happened. For the last few months, ever since I've been really taking Torah seriously, the plant has been growing completely out of proportion. He doesn't stop growing this plant. So Shem's saying hello. Thanks. This is cute. It's cute. Plant all of a sudden after so many years started to grow because now the house Baruch Hashem has holiness. So he's doing mitzvot. He's doing this. He's doing that. But the thing is though with tshuva is tshuva requires a certain amount of leaps. There's many, many small steps and once in a while you're required to make a big leap. You can't just take small steps forever. Anyone that teaches you just take it one day at a time forever is lying to you because it's not going to work. In anything in life, once in a while you have to take big steps, big chances, big advances. You can't just keep treading away and think that's going to work. Once in a while you got to take a shot. No different with tshuva. Tshuva even more so. If you want to start tshuva, you have to take on something big and then a bunch of small things. You get acclimated and used to those things. Small things and the big thing. Eventually, it becomes everything becomes the same almost. Now it's time for you to take the next big step. So let's say, for example, you started with learning Torah every day for 15 to 45 minutes a day and keeping kosher and and uh, I don't know, saying uh, Okay, great. This is a good start. After a month, two months that you're doing this, it's time to take another big leap. Okay, I got to start taking something else. What should I do? Okay, I got to start keeping, uh, do tefillin. Tefillin's a big thing. Why? Obligates you every day, six days a week. And a bunch of other small things. I'm going to do the tefillin. I'm going to increase my learning from 15 minutes to 25 minutes and so on and so forth. Then a few months later, oh, got to take another big step. What's the next big step? Time to keep Shabbat. Big step, it's one day a week. Yes, it's a big, yeah, it's required. If you don't take big steps, you're never going to get to them. You're never going to get to tshuva. So once in a while, Shemit Barach wants us to know that not only we're required to make a big step, but he wants to tell us what the big step is. And he tells me that he had a dream. But the dream wasn't exactly one of these fun dreams. Now usually the Gemara Masechet Brachot says that most dreams are complete nonsense. So please don't start sending me emails. I had a dream today. I was a turkey. I had a dream tomorrow. I was a Pikachu. I had a dream the other day. I was a president. Don't start sending me your dreams, please. Every day, I guess, enough people are already sending me their dreams. Don't send me your dreams. Your dreams generally don't mean anything. If you're Pikachu in your dream, maybe you're Pikachu in real life. Okay, fine. You're Pikachu. Go be Pikachu. What do you want me to tell you? Everyone thinks they're the Mashiach or Pikachu. So, anyway, the, uh, he tells me I had a dream. But the dream was very scary because the dream was... Not my dream, the student's dream. The dream was very scary because there was all types of lightning and scary and pay attention for a second, forget the food. Lightning, scary, darkness. It's like a terror. 
and then a voice comes out. Usually, nothing good comes out of this part. But the voice says something interesting. Are you going to believe in me or not? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? Over and over and over again. And each time it gets scarier and louder and more terrifying. And he says to me, I've never been more petrified in my life. I had night terrors. You know, if anyone knows what night terrors are, it's a horrible, horrible type of nightmare where you literally feel the pain. He says, I've had those. This was scarier than all of them. I woke up petrified after I said yes, yes, yes at the end that I'm terrified. I was terrified. Thinking it's over. I went back to sleep. I had the same exact dream again. Are you going to believe in me? Yes or no? Yes or no? Now I need to know. Yes or no? He says, I woke up the second time. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what to do myself. I turned on the TV just to get my mind off of it. I don't know. There's some program about dreams now. I don't know what's happening here. He says, I don't want to go back to sleep. I have to sleep. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He had the same dream. It's petrifying twice already. He goes back to sleep eventually. He has the same dream again. That's when it becomes significant. When he told me he had the dream three times. First, he told me the dream once. Ah, it's cool. It's cool. Could be you want. You watch some movie or something and it says something like that. Twice, ah, it's a coincidence. Three times, Marat says it's meaningful. Three times, I told him, I'll call you in two minutes. I don't call anybody in two minutes. I'll call you in two minutes. Why? You want to live. Now it's not a question, yes or no. Now he's telling you. And the reason why the Gemara says that every single time a person keeps Shabbat, they're becoming a partner to Hashem Barach by because no one was there to witness creation. So Hashem says, you want to be a partner? Keep Shabbat. You're testifying, I created Shabbat, I created six days. I created the world, on the seventh day I rested. By you keeping Shabbat, you're testifying you agree with this. You're testifying it happened. You're testifying I created the world. But, chas v'shalom, if you do not keep Shabbat. If you do not keep Shabbat, it's not, oh, no, no, I don't know, I don't know, no, no. Maraz says, when a person, when a Jew violates Shabbat, it's as if they're screaming to Hashem on Shabbat, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in you. I don't believe you created the world. Maybe somebody else did it. Hashem is screaming at you. Are you believing? Are you going to believe in me? Yes or no? He wants to know what you're going to do in two days. Are you going to scream back, no? Are you going to be a good boy? I said, yes. So Rabotai, sometimes Hashem gives us messages. Those messages... They're much more abrupt than my lectures. The reason why, when you get messages from Hashem, they're a little more painful. Oh, Hashem, He took on Shabbat, Bezat Hashem will succeed. But the key is that we have to understand is that the Torah is not a fluffy book. It's not a fun cartoon. Torah is very serious. And it's very important to understand that if you have not learned this Torah yet, 
you've only heard fluffy details, you've only heard nice stories about the Torah, there's something wrong. There's either something wrong with your parents and how they taught you, or there's something wrong with your teachers and how they taught you, or there's something wrong with you as a student and you didn't listen, or the rabbis you listen. What Something is wrong. Something is clearly wrong. It's time to change. Why? Because the Torah obligates you. If the Torah you've learned your entire life does not obligate you, you don't feel obligated as a result, that means you learned the wrong Torah. So the Mishnah in Avot, chapter 4, Mishnah 27, says, Rabbi Meir Omer, Al tistakel bakankan, ela bemash yesh bo. Yesh kankan chadash male yashan, v'yashan shafidu chadash en bo. Rabbi Meir, and some say it's Rebbe. Some say there's two opinions here. Some say it's Rabbi Meir Baranes. Some say it's Rebbe, Rabbi Yudah Nasi. Mishnah does not change, just the uh, story behind it changes slightly of what the meaning is. But either way, the Mishnah says, don't look at the jug, but rather what's in it. There is a new jug filled with old wine. An old jug that does not even contain new wine. So this sounds very similar to the common saying, don't look at the cup half empty, look at it half full, but much more extensive. Once again, we see that any divrei chokhmah, anything that had any significance of any value in the world, whether it's a saying, a thought, or anything in the world, must have Torah background behind it. If it has good in it, it must have something of background in the Torah. So, Rabbi Meir Balanes, in essence, he's saying here something that's common sense. Don't look at just the jug, don't look at just the outside, look at what's inside. Sometimes what's inside will impress you, the outside looks sloppy, looks like nothing, looks homeless but the inside has precious diamonds. Sometimes it looks great on the outside, but rotten on the inside. This, in essence, is... The Chachamim say it's the ones that argue that Rabbi Meir Balanes said it. They're saying it because this is the argument to justify the fact that he continued learning from Elisha ben Avuya, his rabbi that went off the derech, and how he was able to continue discerning the good and the bad from him. He was able to do it. We can't. He says, don't look at the outside now that he's a murderer and he's crazy and he says, fine. I'm able to see what's inside. He loved him dearly. And he continued learning from him and he was able to discern, but no one else was allowed to learn from him. That's why, as a matter of fact, many of the old Mishnayot of Pirkei the tracted of Pirkei actually removed the Mishnah of Elisha ben Avuya. They don't have it in there at all. He said, we don't, if it's, he's teaching it, maybe this, it's uh, damaged. So, Rebbe on the other hand, if Rebbe said it, Rabbi Yudana Si, then it's in essence trying to say that he is disagreeing with Elisha ben Avuya and Rabbi Yossi Bar Yehuda, which for the most part said the same thing, that uh, study from the old and wise and not from the young. 
Rabbi, Rabbi Yudan Nasi is saying, I don't care if he's old, if he's young, if he's tall, if he's short. We talked about this yesterday. It doesn't matter what the age is. There's plenty of old fools and there's plenty of young geniuses. What are you selling? What's, in, what's inside? You have something to offer? I want to hear it. What's it? What's inside? I want to know what you have to teach. You have a chidush? I'll listen. You want to talk about baseball, basketball, football, money, stock market, bitcoins? Not interested. People keep sending me text messages. Hey, how are you? I usually don't answer. Don't ask me how I am. You're, it's, it's, give me the real question. What's the? You don't really care how I am. Don't send me a hi. Hi, how are you? You don't really care how I am. Let's be real here. What do you want? Send me the real. I don't. I, I don't respond. I don't respond because I find it very annoying, to be honest with you. Because I have a million and a half messages. Now I have to answer every single one person that says, "How are you?" So I wait for them to eventually give me the real question. And many times people ask me questions like, oh, what do you think of Bitcoin? Or what do you think of the stock market? Oh, it used to be in the market. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And again, I don't answer. And the reason why is because it's not my life. It's not my life anymore. And anyway, you're not going to listen. Even if I told you, you're not going to listen. What's the difference? I told, if I told you it's garbage, you're not going to listen because you already own it. I told you it's good, you're not going to listen. And if it falls down, you're going to blame me. So either way, I lose. So don't ask me. You want to ask me about Torah? I'll try my best to answer. But many people ask questions for no reason whatsoever. Here we have Rebbe Akadosh is saying, I don't care if you're from Wall Street. I don't care if you're tall, you're short, you're black, you're white, you're a gear, you're a natural born Jew, you're a rabbi, you're a regular guy, you're five years old, you're 50 years old. I don't care what's inside. What are you offering? What do you got? Do you have a chidush? You have something? Show me. Why? Why? We talked about this yesterday. David Melech taught us. I love your Torah so much. All day, it's, all day, I talk about it. All day, I talk about Torah. So, Rabbi Kadosh, that's the way that the commentators see. What you see, if you see 70 faces of the Torah, we now have two for this one particular thing. It doesn't make a difference. Whether it's this one or that one, it doesn't disagree with each other. It's like one says black, the other one says white. Both of them are two different teachings, even if it's the same character, and you have two different opinions of why you wrote this Mishnah. Either way, it's two different perspectives of, of, that you can learn from the same Mishnah. Now, this is something that you can literally translate into 500 different things, if not more. Don't look at the jug, look at what's in it. In the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, Masechet Ta'anit, I believe it's page 25. I think I brought Ta'anit. Good that I brought it. You guys are going to look. Hey, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, anyway, um, in the Mishnah, in Masechet Tani, chapter 2, 15a, it mentions a verse from Sefer Yoel, the prophet Yoel, chapter 2, verse 13. The prophet says, you know, after he sees all of Am Yisrael starts to fast. They start fasting, they start ripping their clothes, putting sacks on, 
says, do tshuva, do tshuva. So they start fasting. They start putting, changing their clothes. They're not wearing the, uh, you know, the tank tops and the uh, ripped jeans anymore. And the prophet says, Rip your hearts, not your clothes. From here, from this Mishnah, we learn that Hashem Barach is not looking for you to rip your clothes. He's not looking for you to fast every day or every Sunday or every Friday or every other day. He's not looking for you to go and roll yourself into uh, snow. He's not looking for you to do all these different things that if you're in a high level, then you don't need to be here anyway. But if you're an average Joe like us, uh, the reality of it is he's not looking for that. All he wants you to do is do tshuva. And tshuva requires for you to learn Torah and do what it says. Do, learn Torah and do what it says. Not what you want to do. Not what you think you should do. But what you have to do. Why? Hashem said so. It's the real reason of all of the mitzvot. Hashem said so. If a person does not understand the significance of Torah, doesn't understand the magnitude of Torah, thinks that there's doubts, thinks that you know maybe, maybe they agreed on one thing in that day and they don't agree on it today, then you don't really understand the precision of the law. So for example, in Gemara Masechet Shabbat and also in Gemara Masechet Chagigah, in Shabbat it's page 15a and in Chagigah it's 16b. It talks about a 200-year debate there's a debate for 200 years. 200 years. A debate. About what? You would think it's a debate. Do you drive on Shabbat or no? A debate. Eat kosher or not kosher? It's a big debate. I'll debate about it. Listen, some guy said, listen, I have a way for you not to eat kosher. Go eat cheeseburgers from every McDonald's. I'll debate 300 years. If there's a way, I, I want to eat a cheeseburger. Why not? Never had it, but maybe it's good. I'll debate 300 years if I live that long. Sounds like something to debate for. Something to live for. So, the reality is, you think it's a big deal. It's like, ah, keep Shabbat, don't keep Shabbat. Something huge. One of the 613 mitzvot. Big, 200 years of debating the same thing. You know how many chachamim, you know how many generations go on in 200 years? You know how many people had to review this and debate the same thing? What are they debating on? What's the debate? Debate is... Are you allowed to put your hands on top of the cow when you bring in it as a korban on Shabbat or not? Are you allowed to do it also on Yom Tov or not? That's the 200-year debate. That's it. One side, Bet Shemai says, if you do it, you're Mechalel Shabbat. The other one says, Bet Hilel, it's fine, you're allowed to do it. In the end, you're allowed. But the point is, people think that the Torah was given loosely. Yeah, he thinks this, he thinks that, you think this, you think that. Sometimes I hear these teachers, these rabbis, God bless them, they just don't understand the secular mind. They don't understand a generation today. They don't understand that people don't know anything. With all due respect to all of us, we don't know anything. We, and I've, I'm also including religious people. I'm also including people that have gone to yeshiva. 
I'm telling you, I've met a lot of people. It's very, very rare to find someone who really has all of their ducks in a row. They may know certain things. They may know plenty of halachot. They may be, have certain strong points. But there's always some, one, two, or three major principles that are like missing. It's like missing a leg. It's missing an arm. It's like, it, yeah, overall, it's something there. I mean, a guy's religious. He keeps Shabbat. He keeps Talat Mishpacha. He keeps kosher. He's a, no problem. But something's always missing. There's no emunah or they're wasting seed. It's like something, it's never something small. It's always like something huge. It's like you have the body, you have the head, you have the torso, you have the legs, you have the arms, you have the heart, you have all the different uh, parts of the body. Everything is good, right? But here, I'm telling you, time and time again, I go to religious communities, I go to Hasidim, I go to Chilonim completely, I go to Hollywood, I go to California, wherever you want, every place I've gone to, in Israel, America, wherever it was, it's not complete. It's always like, yeah, he's got the head, yeah, he's got the legs, yeah, he's got the body. Oh, he's he's missing a chest. Why is there a hole? Why is there, there's, a, there's no chest. Oh, he's missing an arm. He's missing, what, where's the arm? Your, your le- hey, your, your left arm is missing, man. The, the left one, it's missing. You're not doing it. It's, oh, it's always something big. It's like the guy looks great, but there's no emunah. The guy looks amazing, genius, knows every halacha by heart, but doubts whether Hashem really cares. It's always something big missing. People somehow, they just skip the lesson somewhere. Something happened along the way where Hashem didn't feel that you were glued enough, hard enough to Him where He just didn't give it to you. Like He wanted that Mesirut Nefesh, He wanted that sacrifice for you to make to get that extra piece and you just never, and you just never did it. And I'm not just talking about the Religious, the non-religious, the Jews, the non-Jews, of course, obviously. I mean, every I'm telling you, it's everywhere. And just people just walk around like they're perfect. And from an outside perspective, I'm like, you're missing an arm, you're missing a head, your face is completely crooked. And obviously, I'm talking about spiritually. Not that I'm some uh, genius or uh, I'm perfect. I have probably more to fix than all of you. The point I'm trying to make is that from an outside perspective, it's much easier to tell. Especially when you work with it all day. But everyone doesn't seem like everyone walks around like this. It's no big deal. Like, oh, it's, you know, the Torah is, uh, you know, a lot of people tell me, oh, no, you know, the Torah has 70 phases. You know, it's up to, uh, up to your understanding, up to uh, whatever, whoever, whatever you understand. And sometimes you see certain rabbis teach and they give you like a, uh, a bunch of sheets of paper to show you all the sources. And uh, this is like the Yeshiva University way where they give you a source sheet, they call it. They give you a source sheet. And they tell you, I don't know, it's like 30 pages or 40 pages, which is a lot of work went into it, no questions asked. There's 30, 40 pages of source sheets of, you know, what they're talking about. They're talking about, I don't know, whether you're allowed to make tea on Shabbat. And if you're allowed, how you're allowed to do it, and so on and so forth. Or whatever Allah they're talking about on Shabbat. And they give you 30 pages of different opinions of how to do it, this, that, the other thing. I think there's no, literally, it's one of the worst teaching styles for this generation that could be. If you were 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, any other time before this generation, fine. This generation, I think it's just the wrong approach for most people. Maybe not all, but for most people. Reason why? We know so little, we know so little that when you tell me 
there are 30 different opinions to me as a secular person, secular mindset, that just means no one knows what they're talking about. So what's the difference from their opinion and mine? They don't realize that to come up with the opinion, we had 200 years of debate. Just to, whether you're allowed to put your hands on top of the cow's head or not. 200 years we debate. They think it's just like loosely being translated. No, he agrees. He doesn't agree. It's like today he felt like it. Tomorrow maybe he'll change his mind. Like people think like Allaha is like, oh, he, no, he doesn't like it. Oh, yeah, today maybe tomorrow he'll change his mind. People don't realize what goes into it. They literally debated for 200 years to a point where many times Bet Shammai put a sword by the table and said, no one's leaving until we get to a conclusion. That's how they got to the conclusion, by the way, after 200 years. They said, no one's leaving. Doesn't matter, day, night. It doesn't make a difference. You have commitments, no commitments, wife, kids, food. No, no one is leaving until we get to a conclusion after 200 years. 200 year debate for one law that none of us practice anymore because we don't have cows and we don't have kobanot and we don't have a better mikdash. So people think that when there's 30 opinions, they don't know what it means. They don't know what it means, 30 opinions, 20 opinions, 5 opinions. Even if there's 2 opinions, it's hard for me to understand. What does it mean, 2 opinions? Well, there's 2 Torahs. So then people that are not glued to Hashem, not Talmidei Chachami, like for real, like really, really serious people, they don't realize this and this are living Torah. They could both be right. They could both be right even if it's in essence opposite. They could both be right. Hashem wants both of them. But the point is for you to toil to figure out which one is true. They're both true, but I want you to prove your side. That's toiling in Torah. This generation does not understand that for the most part. Does not understand that for the most part. So they think that we're just supposed to learn a bunch of things and just know it by heart like it's a uh, high school uh, you know, uh, math, que- uh, math test. Or it's a history lesson uh, to remember European history and who killed who and who tortured who and why they had the witchcraft and why uh, Martin Luther decided to, uh, you know, to kill a bunch of women for absolutely no reason just because he decided they're all witches. I mean, we're supposed to, this is what we learn in European history in school. That's what they learn in public school. This, they feel, oh, this is, this is important. This is important for you to learn about some psychopath that decided to kill a bunch of people and burn them alive. That's what you think is important. That is the part that's important. And then we don't debate them. We don't debate the school system for teaching us about psycho racist people. We don't, we don't, no one debates that part. No one debates this craziness that they teach in school. But the rabbi says, listen, Hashem said you have to keep Shabbat. Hey, hey maybe he doesn't mean it. Maybe, hey, oh, I don't agree. Do you, do you know? Did you follow it? No, but I don't know. Maybe it doesn't sound right to me. No one else said it. No one else said that if you drive on Shabbat, you get a death penalty. You understand? So the point is, is that the Torah is not some loosely translated, you know, open debate. For them to come up with a law, they were literally willing to put their life on the line. That's the Torah. So with that being said, Hashem Baruch says, don't take my Torah and turn it into some idolatry, some uh, witchcraft, some cult 
where you start ripping your clothes and you start wearing strange clothes, you put some weird strings on you, you fast on for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, there are certain fasts during the year. Hashem put it in Torah, no problem. But don't just start adding stuff when you don't really know the meaning. People think that, you know, every time if they waste seed, as long as they go to the mikveh, it's okay. You can go to the mikveh from here until next year. You can just sleep inside the mikveh. If you continue wasting seed, it's not going to help you. Same thing goes with the um, Tikkuna Klali book that I gave you guys tonight. Tikkuna Klali is very well known from Rabbi Nachman Breslev. It's all Psalms. But it's a certain order of different psalms that Rabbi Nachman Breslev picked that says this is good if you've wasted seed by accident. Accidentally. Accidentally, you read this according to Rabbi Nachman Breslev and his chokhmah and his kedusha. if it's accidental, meaning you fell asleep, it happened. If you read this and focus and meditate and, 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 and do your best, obviously, for it not to happen, by watching your eyes and so on, says your sin will be forgiven. Because it's still technically a sin. It's still technically a sin, even though it's not on purpose. Why? Because the Gemara says uh, that if you watch your eyes, you watch your eyes during the day, it'll protect you from having bad thoughts at night. If you don't watch your eyes during the day, it's only natural you're going to have a dream about it. So, Anyone that has these types of dreams on an extended period of time, it's because you're not watching your eyes. There's no other reason. You're not watching your eyes. You're watching movies, you have books, you have different things that have a lot of immodesty. You're not watching your eyes, and that's what happens. So even if you're not doing it on purpose, it's happening, and in Shemaim, it's still considered a sin. Not the same level of sin as if you literally outright did it. Which brings me to my second very critical point that most people do not know. Tikuna klali... This specific tikkun akali from Rabbi Nachman Breslev has absolutely no effect whatsoever if you did it on purpose. If you did it on purpose, you can read tikkun akali from here till next year. It's not going to help you. Tshuva will help you. Tshuva will help you. Learning serious Torah is going to help you. Giving tzedakah is going to help you. Learning really serious Torah to help you. Committing to not doing it again is going to help you. But just reading Tikkun HaKali, Rabbi Nachman Breslin himself says it's not going to help you. Did it on purpose. You just made the biggest sin in the Shulchan Aruch. What do you think? You're just going to read some Tehillim, everything's okay? Then everyone's going to be a sinner for the rest of their life. So, a lot of people think that it's just you read a few things and you know Judaism turns into mumbo-jumbo and we, we finished. So, that's very, very important to understand that you can't just do things nonchalantly and just think that everything is a cure. Everyone th- wants a quick zgula, a quick trick to fix all their problems. That's not Judaism. It's not Judaism. So we learn this when you really learn the, uh, the depths of the Torah, you see that the reality of everything is very different than what most people think. Now, the uh, Mishnah says that sometimes you're going to see certain people that are teaching, and you don't know, is it right, is it wrong, you're brand new still. You're brand new. You don't know what to tell. There's some guy that's become well-known that is a, uh, is a few, unfortunately. It's a few well-known people 
that are being recognized as rabbis uh, that are complete heretics. One guy is not even a heretic. It's that him, a heretic, is actually less than him. He's worse than a heretic. He's a mean. And this guy is uh, Itzhak Shapira that teaches people to go to Christianity. He focuses specifically on Jews and tries to bring them to believe in the New Testament and J.C. Penney and all that idolatry. Uh, this is a guy, I mean, he calls himself rabbi for an ignorant fool that sees this guy as his first rabbi. He doesn't know the difference. By the time he's in, by the time he realizes this is idolatry, he could very well already be in a few months or even a few years. It depends on how serious of a learner he is. There's other people that we've talked about many times before, and I haven't mentioned names in most cases, simply because it's not necessary. Everyone that knows will know who I'm talking about. It's reality of it is some of them look like they're much more religious, they're much more, well, you know, just more, uh, they're more, they're more. It looks like they're more. Why? Because we're looking at the exterior. You see the payas are as long as the, uh, as, as the winter. You see the, uh, the hat and the clothing and the way they talk. Oh, and they look like they just came from the clouds. Oh, Hashem loves you. Yes. Oh, it, it's always like this, this, everything is all floaty and wonderful. And yeah, don't worry. Well, you just murdered five people. That's okay. That's okay. Just, just, just make the check payable over here. Yes, bring it to our check. Yes, thank you. Actually, it's better if you wire it. And here's a few children's books that I wrote. You know, he looks much more religious, this fool. Or the people that invented new laws saying that the, the whole world is misunderstanding Rambam and they themselves are understanding Rambam. Foolishness is at an all-time high. Chutzpah the, is the, 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 the Literally, the lack of shame is skyrocketing. If it was a stock, it would be infinity. It would be infinity. How can we tell? How can we tell? This is the responsibility of every single person, both Jew and Gentile alike. Hashem Itbarach said, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you look for me, you'll find me. If you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul. Meaning, if you're going to continue following these liars, these heretics, these fools, these minim, that are distorting my Torah, you're not going to be able to use it as an excuse in Shemaim. Why? You are obligated to double check what they said. Looking at their attire, looking at their title, looking at the money they have, means nothing. Why? I gave you a brain, I gave you a heart, I gave you limbs, I gave you everything you needed to find out the truth. You cannot use it as an excuse. There's a very famous story written about Ibn Aizm. Ibn Aizm is one of the giants in history of, of Judaism. A lot of commentary in Torah. But Ibn Ezra, God bless him, uh, he, uh, he blessed him with extraordinary wisdom, but no money whatsoever, no luck whatsoever. He says that on himself, if he started an umbrella company, Hashem would just make sure that it never rains again. If he started a hat company, Hashem would just remove people's heads. <coughs> he literally had no luck. So he was very, very poor. Now in those days, there's no internet, there's no social media whatsoever, there's no pictures of people. So people didn't know how the Chachamin looked like. So one day he goes into a town and 
he uh, decides that this is a um, place he wants to maybe try to see if he could teach and so on and so forth. So he goes into the big key line, the community, and they look at this guy like he's some homeless bum. They oh, I want to give you Dvar Torah. Hey, go find somewhere else. Completely disrespect him, completely dishonor him, not even asking who he is, nothing. Ivan Ezra was very spicy, like as you see all the Chachamim. They were fire. The Gemara in Masechet uh, Chagiga, at the end of Masechet Chagiga, it says, Tamit Chacham is like ish. It's like fire itself. Kulo ish. He's all fire. You can't be a Tamit Chacham and be still nothing. To be a Tamit Chacham, you have to be much fire. Why? Because the Torah is fire. It even gets to a point where the Torah says that if someone is on his way to becoming a Tamit Chacham, it's expected for them to be a little moody at times because of so much fire. So the wives should take it easy on them. The wives should take it easy on them if they're a little moody at times. Why? You're fire. You must fire. It's not you're allowed to be angry. That's Abu Dazara. But to, to be fire, to be like quick sometimes, you know, sarcastic, you know, short-fused even at times, it says even the Kwanim, the Kwanim. And Bet HaMikdash, we're just like that. Why? Kodesh Kodashim. When you have so much Torah in you, you're fire. There's no such thing as light fire. So now, Eben Ezer wanted to get back at them, but he left town, and on the way out of the town, he's a tall, handsome guy with a really long, respectable beard, looked good. You know, they say, Someone that has a keres, keres is a stomach and a long beard, he's already half a rabbi. Big stomach and long beard, already half a rabbi. So, Evan Ezra says, How are you? Who are you? What do you do? You're, you're a big rabbi? No, 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 I'm a rabbi. I sell meat. Sells meat. He goes, Ah, he goes, yeah, listen, you sell meat long enough, you can have keres also, and the beard is free. He says, listen, you, uh, what do you make a week? Oh, no, I don't make uh, 500 bucks a week. I'm just giving you a hypothetical example. Make 500 bucks a week. Because you want to make 100,000? Sure. Follow me, do everything I tell you. No problem. He comes with them, comes back to that same keila. Hey, you again? You go, no, no, no. Listen. Nah, I'm not coming to do anything. I'm just a shamash. I'm just a helper of this giant rabbi. Ooh, see this guy, respectable, long beard, tall, handsome, ta-ta-ta. Oh, where is he from? Listen, he doesn't talk. He's a tani dibu. He doesn't talk to the public eye. He talks through me. That's why I'm his helper. You want to know anything in the Torah? Philosophical issues, alakha issues, this issue, that issue, whatever you want to know, he's going to tell you. Any question you have. Oh, yeah? You know, Jews are very curious people. You say we can ask, they ask. I, I told you guys to write some questions you wrote. I still haven't answered them yet, though. So, I forgot about the question. Let's see if any of these questions have to do with the story. So, um, so now, the uh, Keilah is very excited. Who is this big rabbi? Fine. They start asking questions. He, Evan Ezer pretends like he's talking to him, whispers to him in his ear. And then Evan Ezer talks, tells every question. Every question he gives him a chidush. Not like I give you a little chidush, you guys get entertained for five minutes. 
Chidush, every chidush changes their life. Every chidush, you give them a letter, he gives you chidush on a letter. You give them a word, he gives you chidush on a word. Anything you want, he gives you chidushim, gives you insights that you've never even thought of. You never even thought that someone can think about them. Genius of geniuses. Like this is the greatest rabbi in the world. Wow, what a chacham, what an amazing ta-ta-ta. Listen, on Shabbat, who well, I'm going to host them, they fight on who's hosting him. Now they start giving, oh listen, I'm going to donate a thousand. I'm going to donate a thousand. Now every time they ask a question, a thousand comes in, two thousand comes in, three thousand comes in. And people start donating to this big rabbi. How are you not going to honor the big rabbi? You just keep the visit. He probably has yeshivot. He probably has kolels. He probably has this. He needs our help. Who? We're not going to help the biggest rabbi in the world answer every question. I'm going to host them. They start fighting. Who's going to host them? So on Shabbat, they say, listen, we got to hear the rabbi himself. Give us a shiur, something. No, no. Just the rabbi talks to me. What do you guys want to know? You can pick whatever issue you want. And I already know. I already learned a lot from this rabbi. I learned my whole life from him. So, say, can the rabbi say anything? So, the rabbi said, the fake rabbi, the meat salesman, Papa Pipa. As we said, Pop, nothing. A word that meant absolutely nothing. Everybody said, wow, what's this? Evan Ezel, as genius it gets. He goes, oh, Papa Pipa. Let me tell you what he taught me about Papa Pipa. You guys have no idea. I got this. You taught me enough about Papa Pipa. You told me now about power. Please don't tire yourself. You're, you're, you're. He starts giving them a shiur, a papa, pipa, but it's alachot, alachot Shabbat, alachot tarat mifan. He's teaching them everything, but somehow it's connected to papa, pipa. The genius here is out of this world. This keila has never seen anything like it. Over the next three weeks, they're there. They you know donate a ton of money. After three weeks, Evan Ezel says, okay, all the money is yours. Enjoy, That's, that was the deal. I'm leaving. Well, what do you mean you're leaving? What, what do I do? I don't know the answer this year. He goes, no, nah, listen, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. In general, they're all going to ask you, at this point, they asked already all their questions. Right now, they're just going to ask you common questions, basic, simple stuff. Because what do I do? He goes, okay. Someone's going to come to you and going to say, listen, I, um, I dropped my tefillin. What do I do? I drop my tefillin. Happens. People drop their tefillin. Pick it up, kiss it, and give some tzedakah. Okay, so the guy's like, okay, guy's, uh, you know, he's hollow inside. He has no brain, no nothing. So now he has to repeat. Pick it up, kiss it, give tzedakah. Pick it up, kiss it, give tzedakah. One mitzvah, he still doesn't. Kick it up, kiss it. Okay, fine. Okay, what's the second question you're going to ask me? Second question you're going to ask you, somebody's, you know, slaughtered a cow. But now they don't know, they saw that the lungs have something that looks like a hole, but they're not sure. So how can they verify if it's taref or it's kasher? If it has a hole, it's taref. You cannot have to eat the whole cow. If it's kasher, it's kasher. How do you know? Says, you tell them, put the lungs in the water. If there's bubbles come out, it's taref. Not allowed to eat it. If no bubbles, kasher. Okay, great. He goes, the third question is the most important one. Most common one, most important one. What are they going to ask me? He says he's going to ask you about Shlom Bayi. say, a husband or the wife going to come to you. Kvodarav, my wife, she yells, she screams, she curses me. I hate her. She hates me. I want a divorce. I want this. I want that. Say, come back next week. Why come back next week? Because by next week they'll figure it out on their own. 
Okay, so that's the thing. They say, oh, goodbye, goodbye. Thank you for giving me a million dollar business over here. And he goes away. Ebenezer leaves. Somebody comes to this hot dog salesman that became a rabbi. And uh, asks him, hey, for the love, uh, listen, I uh, dropped my uh, tefillin. And the guy confused some of the answers. I dropped my tefillin for the love. What should I do? Oh, come back next week. Come back next week. The guy like, come back next week. Okay, maybe he's busy. So he leaves. Now the guy comes in. Hey, for the love, I just slaughtered a cow. And I don't know if it's kosher or not. What should I do? There's a little hole in it. You see this hole? What do I do? How do I know if it's kosher or not kosher? He goes, oh, it's okay. Just give it a kiss, put some tzedakah, and it's okay. Give the lung some kiss, put tzedakah, it's okay. So now the guy comes in, I have shlom by problem. My wife is this, my wife is that. Now he realizes, okay, I used the first answer, was okay, to come back next week. Second answer was kiss and give tzedakah. What do I have left? Oh, put a... Put her in water. If there's bubbles, no good. Gotta get divorced. If there's no bubbles, she's kosher. You can stay with her. At this point, the guys, they realize this guy is a fool. They said, who told you, who told you to do this? Who told you to do this? Oh, Evan Ezel. Evan Ezel. That's who came here. They went, chased them down. They caught up. Them. Why'd you do this to us? Why'd you do this to us? That's because you did not honor the Torah. You did not honor the Torah, you honored the outside, you honored the outside. You honored him because he had the beard and the hat and the this and the that, and that's the punishment you get. Because if you honored the Torah, you would have honored me when I went to came to you to come teach you Torah. But you sold me, you saw me, you thought I was some homeless guy. You didn't find out what was inside. That's what you get. All the money you gave him belongs to him, that's the deal. All the money you gave him, that's the deal. That's the deal. There's no, there's no, no taking it back. That's the deal. That's what you get. Why? The Torah has nothing to do with what you look like. But on the other hand, on the other hand, in Igmara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 94, A. Rabbi Kadosh, Rabbi Udanasi, says, he called his clothing, clothing that he had, he called them my honorees. Meaning his clothing gave him honor. And in the Gemara, Masichet Shabbat, page 114, it actually says that a Talmit Chacham that walks knows that he has a stain on his shirt and walks outside with a stain on his shirt, Chayav Mita. Deserves death penalty. Why? It's Chilul Hashem. It's Chilul Hashem. This is what a Talmit Chacham looks like. So it sounds like a little extreme. Here. Okay, so he has a little stain. He has a ketchup stain. He had some a little hamburger after he checked it in the water. He had a burger and uh, he had some ketchup. What's the big deal? Why? You're letting the world know, oh, this is what our B'nai Torah look like. They look like bums. If you have a choice, you're not allowed to look like that. Change shirt. Why? What's the real meaning? What's the commentary? What's the oral Torah of the oral Torah really tells us? They really care about the shirt. They really care about the ketchup. What's the real secret? Why chayav mita? Why, why death penalty? I mean, death penalty seems extreme. It's a ketchup stain after all. Okay, I said that. I was lazy. I had another shirt. I was lazy. 
I didn't feel like putting it on. It's not that I, if I don't have another shirt, or if it happened at work and I don't have another choice, okay, that's not my fault. There's no chayav mitah for that. There's no death penalty for that. If it happened, you have no way of fixing it. That's not a, that's not a death penalty. But we're talking about here, the Gemara says, if you have the ability to fix it, you have a stealing shirt, you have the ability to fix it, and you don't, death penalty. Why? Why is the chilul Hashem? Reason why, if you're Tamit Chacham, that means you're going out there to go teach. You're going out there to teach the sons and daughters of Hashem his Torah. But if you look like that, they're not going to listen to you. If you look like that, if you look like you just came out of the, uh, of the garbage pail, they're not going to listen to you. And by not listening to you, they're not listening to Hashem. If they're not listening to Hashem, each one of them can become a Chalel Shabbat. Each one of them can become intermarried. Each one of them can start eating Talef on a daily basis. Each one of them can lose their Neshama right after your Shiyu. Why? Because you were too lazy to change the ketchup stain. I just lost a son because you didn't want to change a shirt. That's why it's Chayav Mita. It's such utter disrespect for the position that you have as a teacher that you don't deserve to live. To that extent, when you don't understand what kind of influence you're going to have on the world around you, when you have no idea what, te- what the words that come out of your mouth mean, what kind of impact it has on people, you don't deserve to forget you don't deserve to be a teacher. You don't deserve to live. Because you're literally taking little precious souls, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and 50-year-olds. You're taking them, you're just throwing them and gaining them. Why? You don't feel like doing anything better about yourself. So, looking like a bum on purpose is not allowed. Not allowed. You have to honor the Torah. You have to honor your Creator. So now, we see that the first part of the Mishnah, Rabbi Meir or Rabbi Yudana, see whichever one it was, already sees that the outside and the inside is significance. There's significance that if you truly look into it, you could literally talk just about this section for another several hours, if not more. But now... It says, sometimes you'll have a new jug with old wine. And sometimes you'll have an old jug that doesn't even have new wine. Sometimes you can have a young person, sharp mind. He's going to have chidushim, new wine. Chidushim, fresh new insights. As I told all of you, each one of you has a chidush in shamayim. One, two, three, four, five thousand could be. Could be five thousand chidushim with your name on it. Waiting for you to get there. Meaning that if you don't get those chidushim, there's going to be a case against you in Shemaim. This part of the Torah was waiting for you. Why didn't you do it? Oh, I was busy playing baseball. Oh, I was busy uh, on Wall Street. I was busy doing a bunch of other things that don't matter to eternity. You have a problem. And the reason why is because your soul is not here for the first time. You have a question here is that if our soul is the past soul and we're meant to reach perfection, why do we tell people, may you live till 120? Shouldn't we say, may you complete your life's meaning or purpose? 
Yes, but most people don't understand what that means. And the reason why is because most people don't understand that they actually have a purpose. Most people think that their purpose is to make money, to have a bunch of friends, to, have a, uh, to be popular, to be famous, to enjoy life. When you tell people that a significant, significant part of your purpose is to suffer in this world, significant part of your purpose is to suffer in this world, already all heads turn upside down. Like, oh, you suffer. No, I don't want to suffer. You suffer. I don't want to suffer. You suffer. That's a different... That's a, extra, uh, delete. Delete. Oh, control all delete. To start this year all over again. Control all delete. You suffer. You suffer. I don't want to suffer. Reality is, anyone who's been around, around knows that the vast majority of our life is suffering anyway. You suffer waiting for the bus. You suffer waiting for the paycheck. You suffer waiting for the kids to finally grow up. You suffer for the kids to finally get be born. You suffer for, 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 for your husband to listen. You suffer for the wife to listen. You suffer for the job to fire you finally. You suffer for the job that you want to hire you again. You suffer because it hurts. You suffer because it doesn't. You su- it's constant suffering. That suffering is worth something. We've had a shiur here about suffering. Most people don't see that as a part of life. They don't see that as a good part of life. They don't see it as a purposeful part of life. They think that they're supposed to come here as they're supposed to come to a vacation. This is a life you're supposed to enjoy. You're supposed to go on vacation permanently. And if you really, really are fulfilling your purpose, that means you're just permanently on vacation. You're permanently on the beach. You're one of these surfers that's on the beach all the time. So if you tell people, may you fulfill your purpose if they know what it means, then sure, unfortunately, most people don't know what it means. Don't know that it means to fulfill your purpose. So we tell them 120, and that's not necessarily because we believe that they are going to live to 120, or we don't believe they're going to be live to 120. It's just that we're repeating something that was said in the Torah. That's where it stems from. Hashem Yitbarach, after Parashat Noach, everyone before that was living an extraordinary amount of years, 500 years, 800 years, 1,000 years, and so on. A young guy died at 365 but then the side of Hashem, Hashem at the end of Parashat Noach says that man will not live past 120. So even though there were certain exceptions, like uh, Yitzchak was 180, Avram was 175, and so on, there was a few exceptions to the case here and there. For the vast majority, like Moshe Rabbeinu, or uh, Rabban Yochanan, or Rabbi Akiva, all these giants throughout history lived to 120. So in essence, we're just, it stems from a verse in the Torah that Hashem says, man will not live to 120. But overall, the, the deeper part of this, of this question, as far as our soul, is that more importantly, is to understand that we're not here for the first time. Vadya and uh, some of the uh, giants before him have uh, consistently talked to us about different mystical parts of the Torah, different things, uh, even though Vadya didn't deal with mystical parts on a regular basis, he, he did say one time that there's no more Gilulim. There's no more reincarnation. Meaning, whatever, if you're here, that's it. Meaning, there was. You've been here many times. You could have been here 30 times before. But there's no more time for new ones. Why? Mashiach is around the corner. Mashiach is around the corner. So don't, uh, people that think that they're going to die and then they're going to be reborn again and Hashem is going to give them another chance, just know that there's a millions of souls also already up there waiting for their trials. There's not enough time. Mashiach is supposed to come well before 
the uh, there's enough time for you to do again. So meaning that whatever you're here, this is your shot. So for whatever reason we're here, we're here to fix something. There's something we didn't do in our previous reincarnations. Maybe our Shabbat wasn't good. Maybe our Torah wasn't good. Maybe our whatever. Something we did wasn't good. How do we know what that is? Whatever is the most difficult for you to do, that's your current tikkun. So if you're, let's say, for example, you, modesty is extremely difficult for a woman to do, that's the biggest part of our tikkun now. It may not necessarily be our biggest tikkun for her life, but right now, that's the most difficult, that's the big step you have to take. You have to become modest. So if she decides, no, no, I'm not modest, but you know, I'll do Shabbat. It's easy for me to do Shabbat. It's good, but it's not the tikkun. Of course you have to do it anyway, but it's not the tikkun. I'll do kosher. It's good. It's not tikkun. She's already keeping kosher. She's already keeping all of the mitzvot, but she's still not modest. She says, no, no, I'll do chalav I'll even add an extra chumrah, extra stringency on my kosher, till from now on only drink or eat chalav uh, Israel, which is above halacha. You don't have to do it. Not only you shouldn't do it, not only you shouldn't do it, because it's not going to help that tikkun, but you shouldn't do it because it may fool you into thinking you're more righteous than you are to such an extent that you'll forget that your real purpose is to become modest. And that's what I've seen many, many times. People take on a lot of really easy, small things on themselves and forget about the really big ones. So they'll take a lot of really small ones that are easy. They'll read Tehillim. They'll do this. They'll do that. But they'll figure they won't keep Shabbat. They won't be modest. They won't protect their breed. They won't keep kosher all the time. They, are, they won't cover their hair. And so on and so forth. There's big things. The big things are the key. So if your soul is here, again, that means that you have one of these. You have one, two, three, or a hundred. I don't know how many you have. Each one of us has a different cheshbon and shemaim uh, that you have to fix. Now, as far as a, uh, why is a blind person considered dead? It also has to do with the whole souls and reincarnation. It's because a blind person is limited to the amount of mitzvot that he can do. He can't learn Torah the same way that a uh, person that's not blind can. Uh, he, uh, he can learn Torah, but not to the same level. So there's a story of a person that uh, was losing his vision. And he, started, he was learning Torah. He's like, uh, you know, he's learned the Torah before, but... He doesn't know the whole thing by heart. He's like, listen, he went to the doctor, I'll pay you whatever you want. He said, listen, there's no cure. You're losing your vision, and within a matter of uh, the next couple of years, you're not going to be able to see. There's no cure. So he looked at it, and he's like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to learn Torah. I'm not going to be able to have somebody sit next to me and teach me Torah all day. So how could I fulfill my purpose? How could I fulfill my tshuva? How could I get to Gan Eden? What am I going to do? So he decided that he's going to pick one masechet, one tractate in the Torah, and learn it by heart. So that way, even if he loses his vision, at least he knows one Gemara in his head by heart, and he can repeat it every day, and every day get new chidushim from that same Gemara. You can learn the same Gemara a million times. You're still going to have new insights. So he decided to pick masechet Chagigah, the tractate of Chagigah. A lot of really, really beautiful stories, a lot of beautiful things in that uh, mystical stuff. What happens in Shemaim, what happened before this world, all different types of really, really mystical stuff. People think that you have to go to the Zohar for mystical stuff. There's plenty of it in the Gemara. 
Masechet Chayga has an overwhelming amount of it, and it's a relatively small Masechet. Small, small tractate, meaning less pages. Well, it's, about one, it's one book of these. Uh, very, very entertaining, beautiful Gemara. Uh, anyway, so he started learning this Gemara day and night, day and night. After a couple of years, by the time he lost his vision, he knew it by heart. So for the rest of his life, he learned Masechet Chayga. After X amount of years, he died. And he wasn't a well-known Tamit Chacham. He wasn't very well-known in general. He was quiet and to himself. So no one showed up at his funeral. Buried, Chavah Kadisha buried him. And there's no one to give Kadish. All of a sudden, a woman arrives at the shul and says, Rabotai, one of the Gdolea Do just died. One of the giants of this generation just died, and he does not have even a minyan at his funeral. Everyone was shamed. Who is this? They all ran over there. They got the whole Keila went over there. Oh, it can be. How could we not know? There's a Gdolea Do among us. Oh, it's him. He was in the Keila. How do we not know what fools we are? We just looked at him on the outside. Outside, looking like an average guy. We didn't know he's a giant. We didn't know he knew anything. We didn't know. Oh, wow. Ooh, wow. They all cried. Hysterical. How could we miss out? We had Gdolador among us and we didn't benefit from him. We didn't learn his Torah. That's when, when a giant Chacham dies. We're not crying because the body left. We're crying because we haven't had the opportunity to learn all of his Torah and even more so crying because we're not going to have the ability to continue learning the new insights he's going to get had he lived longer. So now they're finding out they missed an opportunity of a lifetime. They had Gdolador right next to them, and he died. After they say Kaddish, Dvar Torah, everything is this, they finish. The woman, everybody starts walking away, but before that, they say, hey, who are you? And she says, Chagiga, and disappears. Tractate of Chagigah came as an angel. Each one of your Masechtot, each time you learn a Gemara, this is a very famous, well-known story. And uh, the, uh, there's a song written about it also. There's a song written about it, a very nice song written about it. Each time that you learn Gemara, it's literally, it becomes part of you. There's something created as a result of it. This is one of the famous stories that exemplifies it. Believe it, don't believe it, that's your problem. Um, so anyway, the problem and the mistake that we make constantly by judging things on the outside and misjudging it more times than not is that sometimes you'll have a young person that has many new insights that are kosher, that are good, but you're not going to want to listen. You're like, no, 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 I'm just going to listen to the old man. I'm going to listen to the old teachers. But the reality of it is that we learn, we learn from the book of Job that sometimes you can have somebody that's very old, looks uh, like he's a giant, but in reality, only nonsense comes out of his mouth. Only nonsense comes out of his mouth. That's it. He doesn't know any Torah, he doesn't know anything. So, by default, picking someone that's old is not good. And that's what the rest of the Mishnah says. Sometimes you'll have a uh, new jug with old wine, meaning he has the chidushim of, the, of, the, of, of past years, it's in him. But sometimes you'll have an old jug, meaning someone that's been around for a really, really long time, but doesn't even contain new wine, meaning he doesn't even have one chidush. 
One Wednesday, you have, you have a Shabbat, you're there for two, three, four hour a meal. No, Kvodarav, give us a Chidush. No, no, nothing. What do you mean nothing? What did you learn all day? About Pepsi, what did you learn? Coca-Cola, what did you learn? The stock market, how do you not have a Chidush? Nothing? You studied the whole week, you don't have anything to say? Take Parashat Shavua, open the book, read it, do something. How do you, you tell me you learned Torah, you have nothing? Nothing, no, nothing. The whole week you learn, you don't have anything? This is, this means that our studying sometimes is not serious enough. It's not serious enough. You're not supposed to just study, it's not, you know, like it's a Harry Potter book, like it's entertainment. You have to study to teach, even if that teaching means to teach your family. Even if that teaching means to teach your wife. Even if that teaching means to teach yourself. Teach yourself. At the end of the week, you should have something. Doesn't necessarily need to be a brand new chidush to the world, but it should be something. You should have something. Okay, I read the parasha. By the way, Shulchan Aruch says you must read parasha Shavua twice, twice with by itself and one with commentary. It's a law in the Torah, just like keeping Shabbat, just like Brit Milah, just like a kosher food. You must read the Torah, guys. You have to read the Torah. You have to read parasha Shavua twice with no commentary, once with commentary. Meaning, there's no way that if you're following the halachot, there's no way you're going to finish the week with nothing. There's no way. You have to have something. Okay, Yaakov, you know, did this, this, and that. Avraham Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Paraduma. Whatever, something had to happen. You have to have something to say something, some story. You had a video, you heard it, you watched it. You have to go with something. That's why I tell you guys a lot, is that apparently I'm not such a good teacher because no one wants to listen to me. But I tell you guys each time, Bring a notebook. Bring a notebook. Only one student listens. Bring a book. He's been doing it since day one, though, so I can't even give him credit. Oh, that's the new one. He's recording me, too. See, he's, he's, a, he's a good student, but the rest of you, bring a notebook. There's no way you're going to remember everything I'm saying. But you're going to go home to your wives. You're going to go home to your kids. You're going to say, No, okay, you were there for three hours. What'd you learn? Um... Uh, I'll, I'll put it on YouTube tomorrow. What do you mean? I just, I, your wives just gave up three hours of their lives with you for you to go to learn Torah. That's already giant, giant step. Today, you go away for 30 minutes to ask you, where'd you go? If your wife is sending you away for three, four hours. You're gone. Bring something home. Honey, I have the greatest diamond in the world. What is it? Avraham Avinu. Da, 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 da. Yaakov Avinu. Da, da, da. Something. Bring something home. Don't say, here's the link. Go learn yourself. What did you get out of it? What did you get out of it? Same thing with people watching online. Okay, you watched two hours, three hours. You made some comments. You fought some missionaries. You fought some... Great. What did you get out of the shiur? Is it going in here and out there, but with a little bit of entertainment in, in, in between? Or you got something out of it? Are you going to get something out of it? You write it down. You write it down, and therefore, by writing it down, now you're using multiple senses that's going to help you remember it. Because just by listening, you're just using the sense of hearing. By watching, you have hearing and, and, and seeing. By writing, now you have touch too. Now you have touch too. So the more senses you use, the more you're inclined to actually remember this stuff. So that's why it's very, very important for you guys to write it. And I know I've said it about at least four or five times. So hopefully the fifth time is a charm. Now, how do you know that you're doing the right thing as far as your tikkun, as far as your uh, um, 
this this reincarnation. How, how do you know? You're working on your midot. The Vilna Gaon that we talked about earlier, about two and a half hours ago, that they said is double, double Rav Zalman Mivolozhin, uh, or more than that. Uh, he says, the character traits of a person, that's his purpose. That's his purpose. Now the Ramban, Nachmanides, uh, the Ramban wrote in Igeret Ramban, the letter that he wrote his son. Very, very good book to have, very good letter to have. You can get it from Archgo for $3. It's a book with commentary, and you should read it every day for the rest of your life. It's really, really wonderful. The letter itself is very short. It's two, three pages, but the commentary on it is very extensive, and you can learn a lot of Musar from it. Um, anyway, the... Um, the Ramban writes there's different character traits that a person needs to have. But he says, and he agrees with the Gemara and obviously all the other major Chachamim, the greatest midah to have, the greatest character trait to have is humility. Humility is the greatest one. The worst one to have is anger, which stems from arrogance. The reason why humility is the greatest is because when you minimize yourself you automatically by default become a vessel for Torah. Hashem gives the Torah to the lowest places. Mount Sinai was not the tallest mountain. We said it yesterday. Mount Sinai was the lowest mountain. Hashem put because the Mount Sinai was the most modest Hashem gave the Torah over there. Moshe Rabbeinu was greater than everyone else. Prophet of all prophets smarter than everyone else, rich. He was amazing. He was humble than everyone else. He didn't give it to him because he was smart. He didn't give it to him because he was you know, seven, feet, uh, seven meters uh, tall. He didn't give it to him because he was strong. He didn't give it to him because he's smart. He didn't give it to him because he was rich. He didn't give it to him because of any other reason other than the fact that he was humble. And that's why at the end of the Torah it says he was the humblest man that ever lived. Meaning, not just in his generation or before, Ever. No one will ever believe, ever be more humble than Moshe Rabbeinu. No one will ever be more humble than Moshe Rabbeinu. But each one has to strive. Every one of us is obligated to strive to be humble. How do you humble yourself? By working on Musar, working on your character traits. When you learn Musar, there's the superficial type of learning where you just come, you listen, you read a book passively. But then to really take that teaching into your life, you have to write it down. You have to meditate on it. You have to think about it. How do I apply this in my life? Okay, she just yelled at me. What should I do? Well, the Baalea Musa would say, the greatest thing for me to do when someone's yelling at me is stay quiet. Why? Because a war, a war requires two sides. An argument requires two sides. When it's just one, then there's just a crazy person. But it's when it's two sides, then it's an official argument. And in the book of Job, we see there's a verse in it, What is the, Job asks Hashem, what is, Hashem, what is, what is the world, world standing on? On nothing. The world is standing on nothing. So Chazal, the sages explain to us in the oral Torah, and they say, what does it mean that the world stands on nothing? It stands on when people that are have all the right, all the reasons, and all the causes to be angry and to respond, do nothing. Why? Because that's a midah of Hashem. That's what Hashem is doing every day. Every time we sin, Hashem should punish us. 
According to his law, we sin. A guy smokes a cigarette on Shabbat, his head should blow up. A guy turns the car on Shabbat, the car should blow up. A guy flies a plane on Shabbat, it should crash. A guy steals money, his hand should be chopped off instantly. Technically, the law says what the law says. But Hashem waits. Why? I love my kids. I want to do tshuva. I know they fell, they broke, they did this, but I love them. So I want to give them time. Time, time, a year, two years, three years, 30 years, 40, eventually run out of time. Eventually he could come to you in a dream and say, are you going to believe in me or not? And that's when he's telling you, you have to change. There's no more waiting. No more waiting. There's no more time. Time's up. You want to live? Now if the Torah that you've been learning does not tell you such truth, you've been learning the wrong Torah. Because the Torah that's written by the sages, by Hashem Yitbarach himself, that's the Torah that's taught. That's the Torah that's taught. Any questions? Yes. Well, someone that someone that denies the resurrection of the dead cannot convert, because that's one of the thirteen principles of faith. So, if they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead at the time they converted, their conversion is not valid. Now, they can fool the rabbis because the rabbis are still flesh and blood. They can fool the rabbis, but they can't fool Hashem, which means that they are the biggest fools in the world. And the reason why, what people don't understand is that ah, this is scary. What people don't understand, I don't usually give you guys a disclosure, but this is scary. And the reason why is because it's not detailed. I'm not going to give you details, but just give you, if you understand what I'm about to say, you'll be scared. When someone lives a life and they die, however many years, you're not allowed to exaggerate about that person. Meaning, you can't say that someone that was not a big Talmud Chacham was a Talmud Chacham. You can't say, oh, oh, you're such a tzaddik, you're so dolam, kodesh kodeshim, oh yeah, Hashem loves him, and the guy was a rasha, or the guy wasn't necessarily a kodesh kodeshim, he was just an average Joe. Why? The Sfarim HaKtoshim say that the Malachim hear these words. Say, oh, they say it was Kodesh Kodeshim. Oh, they say it was uh, Big Talmit Chacham. No, bring them. Show us. What did you learn? What'd you, where's the Talmit Chacham part? Show us the Kodesh Kodeshim. Oh, so not only you lived a lie over there, but they're still publicizing your lie. And then they start torturing him extra. 
they start punishing him extra for what he left behind. They start punishing him extra for the lie that he left behind. And this is why all of the Chachamim, with no exception, all of the Chachamim say to people, don't say anything at my funeral. Don't say Kodesh Kodeshim. Don't say Chacham. Don't say Tzaddik. Don't say anything at my funeral. Don't say anything. Don't do me any favors. Why? I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about the Chachamim. I'm talking about the Tzaddikim. I'm talking about the real Kodesh Kodeshim. They said, don't say anything. Why? You're going to exaggerate. You're going to say I'm more than what I am. They're going to punish me in Shemaim. That's Olam admit. So all these people that like to, you know, exaggerate about their loved ones that passed, you're not doing them any favors. And it's more than one, two or three or ten dreams that people have had, or different instances that people have had, where they've met their past loved ones, and the past loved ones told them to stop. You're getting me in trouble. Your exaggerations is complete nonsense, and I'm showing up naked every day, when every time, when you're telling people I was holy, I was chacham, I was tzaddik, I was... Every single time, I'm making a joke out of it. They're making it... Because every single time, it's like I dishonored Hashem. It's like, oh, you're Kodesh Kodeshim. No, so, so what Kodesh Kodeshim? That's the Kodesh Kodeshim. They think that Mechalet Shabbat is Kodesh Kodeshim. They think that someone that learned Torah once a year is Kodesh Kodeshim. That's what you left. That's your fruit. Tach! So... This also has to do with this Mishnah. This also has to do with this Mishnah. People that live a lie don't realize the consequences that a person has to pay, the Neshama has to pay, is so dear, is so scary, that if you read the Torah and you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. You're reading, I don't know, maybe you don't speak the language, maybe you don't know what you're, I don't know, something, if you're not scared reading the Torah, I'm not even talking about the commentary of commentary and the mist. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about basic level Torah. Basic level Torah. You see Yaakov Avinu, just in the parasha, Yaakov Avinu just spoke to God in a dream. Spoke to God. It says, the malachim olim v'yordimbo, the angels go up and down. Go up and down, go up and down. So one of the sages says, why are they going up and down? It says, because Hashem loved Yaakov so much, he was so holy, Yaakov, that Hashem decided that on his throne, he has three images. One is the leader, the king of all the birds, the eagle. One is the king of all the beasts, which is the lion. One is the king of all, all the... Um, uh, the bull, and the uh, third, the fourth one is the leader of all of the earth, which is all mankind. Is uh, he decided to have image of Yaakov Avinu? So the that's also why you're not in general you should not have statues in your house of any kind. But if you have, let's say, I don't know, if you do, if you want to have, let's say, a sculpture of a uh, I don't know, a face or something like that, a face is allowed, but a full body is not allowed. A full torso is not allowed unless you break it. You break part of it. And even then, it's not really that good. Or if you can have a bird, you have a sculpture of a bird, it shouldn't be of an eagle. You can have, I don't know, a uh, little parrot or something. Or if you like that stuff, it's fine, but it should not be an eagle. It should not be a sculpture of an eagle. It should not have a uh, lion, a full sculpture of a lion. Why? These are things that can create problems in your house. All types of spiritual issues. When I found this out, on the spot, I was on the. I remember this day like it was yesterday. I found this out. I was on the phone with Rabbi Fryman. We were learning our Torah on Thursday, 
and he's telling me you're not allowed to have an eagle. Oh, I started running in around my house. I had, I knew I had eagles. I had like three, four of them. I loved sculptures. I had three, four. Of them. I'm like eagle, oh, garbage, garbage, garbage. Each one of them cost a ton of money. I was petrified. If you're not petrified, there's something wrong with you. And what else? Lion, lion, psh, garbage, 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 garbage. My wife, it's three o'clock in the morning. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, can't have the lions, can't have the thing, can't have... It's like, okay, start helping me, throw the stuff out. She didn't care. Ball, ooh, ooh, the bull went first. Bull went through the door. I had a few of those. It was a stock market business. So, the angel saw the image of Yaakov Avinu on the, on the throne of Hashem. And then, they see Yaakov Avinu here. So they keep going up. They see the image. They keep going down. They say, how could it be the same thing? They go up. They say, no, no, go see the real thing down there. Then they go down there. They see the same thing. They're like, how could it be in both places? It's like, so now, that was one commentary. The other commentary is much more scary. The other commentary is that they started going up. They saw, oh, Yaakov is on a throne. Wow, look, it's the same Yaakov Hashem decided to put you on a throne. Who are you? Why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping, Yaakov? Don't you know this is a holy place? Don't you know you're supposed to be working for Hashem right now? You're sleeping? He hasn't slept in 14 years. You think the angels cared? They wanted to kill him. Midrash says they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. The Midat Adin wanted to kill Yaakov Avinu. They argued to kill Yaakov Avinu. I said, no, no, let him go. He hasn't slept in 14 years. Let him go. He has enough merits. But they want to Mamash, the Midrash says, they want to Mamash kill him. So, when you understand the depth of Torah, the more you understand, the more scary it gets. But it's only scary if you don't want to listen. You know, it's scary regardless, but it's much more scary if you don't feel like listening. Like this one guy sent me a message. He says, uh, stop teaching people scary things. You know, uh, I, uh, no one dies because of uh, violating Shabbat. I said, well, it's written in the Torah. Da, 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 da. He said, uh, you're a fanatic. I'm like, it's not fanatic. It's written in the Torah. If you believe in the Torah, then uh, it's what it says. I'm like, I know, I said, I, I, I replied to him, I, I know that you may be new to Torah and this is, a, uh, this is perhaps uh, the first time you heard that you're not allowed to drive on, to- on Shabbat and do such things. But this is what it says. So he says, new to Torah, I've, been le- I've learned Torah since I was a kid. Unlike some people, he says, that started in their 30s, making fun of me. Making fun of me because I did you by my 30s. Uh, so I've had my Torah since I was a kid. I said, well, apparently you forgot everything you learned. <laughs> so then he comes back to me and he says, uh, I just spoke to several... Uh, people that know a lot of Torah, and they all said that uh, in the times of the Gemara, no one died, uh, they wouldn't kill people at all, especially not for Shabbat. Especially not for violating Shabbat. I said, well, apparently you and your friends that know a lot of Torah forgot that it's actually written in the Torah itself, the five books of Moses. One week after we got the Torah, we had Slofchad. Sofchad decided to water some bushes. That's it. He decided to just gather a few little little sticks together. It's Chilul Shabbat. 
decided, no, he didn't listen to a uh, rock and roll concert in the middle of Shabbat, have wood, uh, you know, wood stock or something. He just water a little plants. Nothing. No, no big deal. He had a little garden or something. He had a little garden. He said, no, no, I got to feed my... Uh, Got to feed my flowers. People are fanatic about their flowers or something. Got to feed my flowers. Big deal, you know. It's small, small. Not a big uh, concert. Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, "Kill him in front of every single member of entire of Am Yisrael with the worst possible death penalty there is. Stoning." This is one week after we got the Torah, meaning that if anybody would have ever had an excuse. To get a pass. Okay, I messed up. Give me a pass. This would be it. A week after we got the Torah, maybe you didn't finish it. It's a big Torah. Maybe you didn't finish reading it. Maybe you don't know all the laws. Hashem Yitbar says, kill him in front of everyone. So if 3,300 years ago, only a week after we got the Torah, we weren't allowed to violate Shabbat and we got death penalty back then. Even more so today that we've had it for 3,300 years. The fact that you haven't learned it or you haven't accepted it or you don't like it is irrelevant. Is irrelevant. The point, the fact that I did tshuva after I was 30 years old is irrelevant. Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying written in the Torah? It doesn't make a difference. So everyone that wants to make excuses, no, what does he know? Oh, he just did tshuva. Oh, all the stuff that people like to say just to try to, you know, they try to kill the messenger. Try to kill the message. Like, like I wrote the Torah. The reality of it is, this is what it says. I provide you sources. Provide you page numbers even to save you time. I provide you with books. Check it. If you have a problem, go argue with him. Maybe you'll have, maybe you'll, instead of having a dream, you'll have a full face-to-face meeting with them. Unlike my student that had a dream, you'll have a full face-to-face meeting with them. Enjoy. Let us how it turned out for you. You know, you ask a lot of questions. Eventually, they're going to call you up there to answer them. You know, so that's that's the thing. Is that people don't understand that at some point, it's not a joke. At some point, it's not a joke. You have to take things seriously. If you haven't learned Torah that, that, that's scaring you yet, I don't know what you're learning. It's not Torah. Because Torah, it obligates you. And obligations are scary. If you're mature enough to understand what the nature of an obligation, consequence of failing an obligation. What else? No, I'm still trying to enjoy my tea here, so ask some more questions. Anybody have questions online? They, these, these guys are boring over here today. So we covered everything. Another shiur, another uh, series. We're um, trying to uh, see. I don't know if we're... Uh, there's no chance we're going to finish the uh, whole series uh, before the end of the uh, secular year. But uh, we have... Let's see, one, two, the next couple of Mishnayot are very, very long. So the next couple of Mishnayot, there's only two more in this particular chapter. There's a chance that the next couple of Mishnayot will be a couple of Shulim. Maybe, we'll see. We'll see how much time we have and how extensive it is. But uh, also, if you have questions... Uh, that you want me to talk about during the shulim, send it to me before the shulim. You could send it to me on the same day, no problem. It's all Siat Bishmai anyway. It's all Hashem anyway, giving me the information. I have nothing to do with knowledge. Uh, but please, 
have mercy. Send the question in one line. Don't send me paragraphs. Everyone that sends me paragraphs, you send me long stories, I either don't read them or by the time I read them, you don't care because it's a month or two later. Don't send me Megillah still. Don't send me long paragraphs. Don't send me long recordings. Sometimes people send me 10-minute ten, ten recordings. I'm not going to listen to it. It's just, there's too many. So if you're going to send questions, send questions. But it has to be, you have to minimize. You have to be like a little Rashi. Minimize it. Use New York. Literally, just get to the point. Don't tell me the whole story. Oh, when I was three years old, I had this toy. It was a, you know, Autobots. And I played with it. And then uh, my parents took it away. And, and, and by the time you finish, you get to the question, you're 37. That has nothing to do with the first four minutes that, of, of, of the Autobots that I heard about. You understand? So just tell me, what do you want? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. If I have the answer, I'll give you. If not, no. But, uh, oh, by the way, I did make a mistake. I don't know when I said this. But there was a story that I made, I said, um, in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat. Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 54. Uh, it says that, uh, why did Hashem punish the rabbis before He punished the secular people at the time of the Bet HaMikdash? Uh, and the reason was, I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but the reason was, uh, is because the rabbis knew the truth and didn't share it, didn't rebuke the people. So originally, the uh, Hashem, Hashem decided that He's just going to punish the secular people and not punish the rabbis. And I mistakenly said the Shekhinah came to Hashem and said, uh, you know, uh, why are you punishing just the secular people? They're idol worshippers by being Mechalel Shabbat. But the rabbis that are not rebuking them are also Mechalel Shabbat because they're, they're not telling them the truth. It's not the Shekhinah, that's a, that's a um, uh, incorrect. It's the Midat Adin. Because the Shekhinah in essence is a uh, representation of Hashem, whereas Midat Adin, the... Uh, uh, a tribute of, uh, of uh, uh, decrees is actually another name for the Satan. It's another name for the Malach HaMavit and so on. So the Malach HaMavit came to Hashem and says, why are you only punishing one side? So it's not the Shekhinah. It's, uh, so that's, I had to correct that. Uh, someone asked me a question and it's a... And the story doesn't change. just that I incorrectly said one word. Uh, but it's important to know that that word was significant. Yeah. Got a question Go. Why did Noah uh-huh. and Job have to sacrifice to Hashem? Why did Noah and, and, and Job have to sacrifice to Hashem? For the same reason that Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov and Adam Rishon had to sacrifice to Hashem. Every single person that's mentioned in the Torah, uh, the righteous people, made sacrifices to Hashem. Adam Rishon uh, made sacrifices to Hashem. Um, Noah made sacrifice to Hashem, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Hashem uh, and Evel, uh, uh, that sacrifice to Hashem. Until the time of Bet HaMikdash, each person was able to make sacrifices on his own as a way of repenting for their sins. As a way for repenting for their sins. In that time, we didn't have Yom Kippur. In that time, uh, the sins, you were able to repent for them on the same day. Uh, you also... Sacrifices are also a show of gratitude. If Hashem saved your life like He did for Noah, if Hashem saved your life like He did for Avraham Avinu, for Yitzchak, for Yaakov, for all of these great people, uh, our patriarchs, He saved their lives endless amount of times. 
And unlike some of us that are extremely ungrateful people, they were very grateful for Hashem. You know, and as a matter of fact, the Gemara says there are several types of people that Hashem just seriously hates. Like you just can't stand them. Uh, it says, Los sovelotam. Los sovel. Los sovel means you can't stand them. One of them is ungrateful people. Ungrateful people. So all of the uh, giants that are mentioned in the Torah made sacrifice to Hashem either as tshuva for uh, some type of sin they made or as a uh, uh, gratitude. Go. As a guy, can I rebuke my convert brother who is not keeping Shabbat for eating kosher? I do both. Right, so so it depends. Now, if 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 the cousin, if the cousin, if the brother converted, uh, I think I know who sent this question because I think they sent me a question early today. I just never had a chance to read it. Um, first and foremost, why is this convert, regardless of whether he's your brother or not, why is he not keeping Shabbat? Why is he not keeping kosher? Who is their rabbi? Is he did he did he convert through reform or conservative rabbis? If he did, you don't need to convert, you don't need to rebuke him because he's not considered Jewish. If he converted to a reform or a uh, conservative rabbi, Beddin, he's not considered Jewish at all, not even 1% or half of a percent or 1% of 1%, he's considered 0% Jewish, nothing Jewish. Uh, it's either 100% or nothing. Also, if at the time that he converted, even if he converted in an Orthodox uh, uh, Beddin, if at the time he converted, he was not planning on keeping Shabbat, he did not believe the 13 principles of faith, even a single one, even a single one of the 13 principles of faith, his conversion is, is not valid. So you don't have to rebuke him because he's not considered Jewish. He may have a certificate, but that certificate is just a piece of paper. It's worth nothing. So again, first thing you have to figure out is at the time of conversion, who converted him? Is it conservative reform, or is it a uh, you know, or is it a non-valid conversion? That's number one, um, which would be better off for him because he's not keeping Shabbat anyway and, and the laws anyway. It's better off for him that he did a fake conversion. If he did a real conversion at the time, he actually went to a real bedin. At the time, he was serious about keeping mitzvot, and he did for a while. And now, unfortunately, he fell off. Then it's more important to find out why. It's more important to find out why the. Two, there's only two possibilities of why someone is not keeping the foundation as a Jew, why someone is not keeping the foundational agreements between us and Hashem. Not everyone has to be a public speaker, not everyone has to become Moshe Rabbeinu, not everyone has to become a big sage. But every one of us has to keep the basic minimum. Basic minimum is what it says in the Shulchan Aruch, what it says in the, you know, the, the, all the commands we have to do. But which requires us to learn Torah every day, requires us to keep Shabbat, requires us to keep kosher, requires us to have Talat Mishpacha, and so on and so forth. That's basic minimum. That's not Chumrah. That's not stringencies. It seems like it is because we're, you know, we're so far away from the truth, but it is nonetheless minimum requirements. So the only reason why someone is violating openly and without remorse the basic minimum like Shabbat, for example, is either because they don't believe or they don't know. If they don't believe that 
Hashem gave us these mitzvot, or they don't believe in Hashem at all, chas v'shalom, or something like that, that's very easy to prove otherwise. You could show them that the Torah is divine. There's the movies uh, that we've made, uh, Torah, Science, and Ancient Wisdom. There's three parts. You could scientifically prove that not only did uh, God create the world, but also you can prove that God gave us an instruction set, and it's called the Torah. So you could scientifically prove the Torah. If that's not enough, you could also watch the four-hour film by Rav Mizrahi, Shichye, uh, and uh, it's even more extensive and more proofs about scientifically proving that the Torah is not only an instruction set, but it's a divine instruction set and it's the only one that exists. So if it's a matter of belief, then that's one thing. That you could easily prove scientifically. That's the best way to prove something. On the other hand, if it's a matter of knowledge, they just don't know what happens if you violate Shabbat. They don't know. They believe that Hashem gave a Shabbat. They just don't know that it's really important. They don't know that there's a punishment if they get. If it's a matter of knowledge, then there's Baruch Hashem plenty of lectures that we've made, that Rav Mizrahi has made, uh, that uh, Rabbi uh, Zitron has made, uh, Rabbi Elonanava has made. There's a plenty of lectures out there online that you can find out the truth uncensored and what the Torah actually says. Or you can just open the book yourself. Open a kosher book yourself and see Alachot Shabbat. What happens if I don't keep it? What happens if I don't keep you know the uh, uh, kosher and so on and so forth? And that's it. So usually it's because of no belief, not no knowledge, or a combination thereof. Very rarely is that people believe a hundred percent and they just don't know anything because the, the two don't necessarily go together. Uh, so usually it's always like a doubt of some kind. But either way. Uh, you have to find out, number one, if they're a real convert. If they are, then you have to find out why they're not listening. If you find out the reason of why they're not doing it, then you could just provide them the proofs. Provide them the videos, send it to them, and you could save yourself the headache, you could save yourself the agony of arguing with them because now it's not you even doing the job, now it's a professional doing it, and that's usually a much more likely to succeed system than you telling them because usually your um, family is not going to want to listen to you. It's very hard to get your family to do tshuva through you. Very hard. It's possible, but it's very hard. It's much more difficult for me to influence my family uh, than it is to influence complete strangers. Much more difficult. Baruch Hashem, it's, uh, it's worked and, and in some regards, but the point is, is that to rebuke or tell the truth to a complete stranger you've never met before, you're much more likely to succeed that way. And the reason why is because to a stranger, you're a brand new sheet of paper. You have no flaws, you're a tzaddik, you're perfect, you're a little Moshe Rabbeinu, you're, everything is great, you have no flaws, they don't know your downfalls, and you're up nothing. You're brand new. To them, you're telling them the truth, that's it, beginning, middle, end. But to your family or friends or anyone that knows you before you did shuvah. Before you told them this truth, they're always going to look, even if you've been religious your whole life, if they've known you since you were a kid, they're always going to look at you as a kid. It's a story I told you guys yesterday. One of the uh, classmates, former classmates of Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev, uh, saw him many, many years later when he became Rabbi Nachman, one of the Gdolei uh, Adol, but he wanted to still show him like he's friendly. He thought that they're still in fifth grade. 
So when he shook his hand, unlike everyone else that, you know, shook his hand politely or, you know, said something, uh, he like shook, shook him really hard. Like he shook Rabbi Nachman, like as if like, hey, relax, take it easy. Why are you so uptight type of shake? And the story goes that that person became crippled instantly. Like on the spot, he couldn't move. Couldn't move, I mean, and then he realized obviously that it's not the same Nachman from 40 years ago. So that's the downfall sometimes of people is that they don't, you know, they're judging people based on a image, a stereotype, uh, a, uh, a past image. And it's, uh, it's happened to me many, many times in the business world, in the religious world, when I was a kid, when I was older. I mean, it's, uh, it's I don't know, for whatever reason, I'm like, uh, people enjoy the stereotype uh, with me. I remember in Boca Raton, one time, they decided to have uh, these uh, part of the Keila to be security guards. Keila members. Now, I wasn't exactly, uh, you know, I would go to, I go to synagogue, I pray, I leave. I don't, I don't, I don't socialize. Um, I don't believe you're supposed to socialize. And according to the Torah, you're not allowed to socialize in a Beknesset. So I wasn't exactly known uh, in the Kila, unless people watch my lectures. So anyway, one time I uh, go to uh, the Beknesset on Shabbat, and um, the security guard, which is one of the Kila members, he's probably double my age, older guy, you know, doesn't exactly look like a Gibo or anything. He looks like some regular guy. He approaches me and goes, hey, who are you? I'm your own. I'm going to the Knesset. He goes, you live here or are you visiting? I said, I live here. And I'm just continuing to walk. I'm like, who, what does this guy want? Why did he fall on my head? He goes, wait, you live here? When did you move here? Like, what is this, 20 questions? Which key are you going to? Ashkenazi? Sephardi? Like, he, I, I, like this guy looked at me like he apparently, and my wife started laughing. She goes, yeah, he probably thought you, you were a terrorist. You're like, because, you know, he's Ashkenazi and he thinks uh, anyone that's a little darker than him just came from Saudi Arabia. So that, that happened to me. Uh, and, you know, Baruch Hashem, Hashem, Hashem helps me. Hashem helps me a lot. Hashem helps me by destroying my ego over and over again. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, I'm telling you, seriously, it's, 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 it's necessary. It's a necessary tikkun. Um, when you go from, you know, the top of the material world and now you want to teach people the truth of Torah, you can't just do it because you know how to speak. You understand? Because this is a thankless job. This is not, a, this is not the type of job that, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you're making a fortune in, or, you know, this is a, this is a thankless job. This is people, I had a <laughs> thing today. Some guy didn't like what I said in the lecture. He's, uh, he's not a Jew. And uh, he sent me a text. I, the beginning of the text said, uh, I don't know how this uh, this is message is not going to be offensive, but it probably will be offensive. And I listened to your lectures and da-da-da-da-da, and I don't like what you said about the whole issue of uh, Ger Toshav. You know, you disagreed with uh, this one and that one, and he gives me these, I don't know, questions. I stopped reading at that point. He gives him a Megillah. I mean, it would have taken 10 minutes just to read this thing. And he sent me this, like, I don't know, I think he numbered it, I think there's like three or five questions. And at the end he goes, please give me the answers to these things right away. <laughs> and, and this happens to me all the time, by the way. This is not like a one time. This is just today. This is literally a half hour before I arrived here. So I'm just thinking to myself, and I always laugh at this stuff. I'm like, for some reason or another, 
people have this image in their mind that, I don't know, me or maybe every public speaker, I'm not really sure. Maybe other public speakers don't have this or maybe they do. I'm not really sure. I just know me. And I know it actually also happens to Rabbi Mizrahi as well. Um, but it's, a, it's very strange. Like People think like you work for them. Like they think just because they see you on the internet, like you're their employee. Like you're like a public servant. You know, this is like the, each lecture starts with, this is a public service announcement. The government is paying for this lecture. You don't have to donate. We live on man. That Hashem sends us from Shemaim. If you want anything further, this lecture, please just ask for anything. And like they ask for stuff. Oh, can you send me a Kiruv package? Can you pay for it? No, no, no. I don't have any money. You live in a $3 million house. You live in a half a million dollar house. I do not have $100. Or give me the answers to these 18 questions. ASAP, please. You know, chop, chop. Make it quick. I, need, I have something important coming up. I have a meeting. I'm meeting with my rabbi. I need these proofs. I need it for my homework. I need it for my study. Like people think you just work for them. And it's like, oh, well, sometimes I really want to laugh at it. And it's like, say, you know what? If you already think I work for you, can you send me a check for $5,000? I already work for you. At least pay me. At least pay something. But, that, but, that, but that's the thing. It's like people, people have like, they're, they're, they're delusional. And uh, sometimes they just don't realize that their ego is taking control. Their ego is just taking control. Like, you know, there's, there's you and there's your ego. And sometimes your ego just takes control, just runs the house. And I'm sure that at some point the ego ran my life. Uh, so Hashem helps me. Hashem helps me by sending me all these little tikkunim, all these people that, you know, helps me remind me, hey, this is for a reason. Hashem wants to crush your ego a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So, you know, it's, it is. But it's, a, uh, it's, it's funny. At the same time, it's interesting. It's an interesting tikkun. What else? Listen, you could easily get angry at it, which is much easier to get angry, but it's not going to do anything. Um, talks about the prohibition for any Akainim to add to the Torah. I mean, that's a general rule, but... Right, that's in the Torah. It's not even Chazal. That's, in, that's a verse in the Torah. Yeah, it's in the Torah, but the... Don't, is, don't add right or left or and so on. Yeah, but the, the din from Chazal is someone who does that loot also. It's, it's Olam Abba, it's a matter who it is. So, if that's true, that a Chacham... Well, the not adding to the Torah, not subtracting from the Torah, there's a little bit deeper meaning to it. First and foremost, Hashem, Hashem is specifically talking about not adding a mitzvah that's not biblical and calling it biblical. There's Rabbanan and then there's biblical, meaning there's seven mitzvot from the rabbis and then there's 613 mitzvot from Hashem. So Hashem says, don't add or don't take one of the rabbinical mitzvot and tell people it's biblical. And the reason why is because the punishment or the consequence for not following one or the other are very different. So that's one. So don't add and don't subtract. Don't say that we don't bring korbanot because we don't have to. That's not true. If we had the Bet HaMikdash, we have to bring korbanot. The reason why we don't do it is not because we don't have to. The reason we don't do it is because we can't. We're considered anusim. 
meaning that the 613 mitzvot are still 100% valid right now. We just can't perform them because we don't have all the tools. So that's, in essence, in regards to don't add or subtract. Don't say that something is no longer valid because it is always valid. If you're on news, because it's not possible, it's a different story. It's not, it doesn't mean it's not valid. It just means it's not possible. Okay? So, as far as the uh, someone that goes against the Chachamim, someone that uh, says that the Chachamim did something that they didn't, um, they could easily learn from J.C. Penny. J.C. Penny, uh, you know, uh, they call him Jesus, we'll call him, uh, you know, a, uh, whatever you want to call him, but point is, is that he knew Torah. He wasn't a complete fool as far as Torah is concerned. Some even said he knew a lot of Torah, but he was an egotistical person. That because he, as soon as his rabbi punished him, he didn't have the patience to wait for the for the rabbi to forgive him, and he decided to start a whole new religion, a whole new following, and so on and so forth. And his primary his primary objective was to destroy the rabbis. His primary objective was to go against the rabbis publicly. And the halacha is amitkabed beklon chavero en lochelek Someone who gets honor as a result of their colleagues being insulted and, and degraded has no share of the world to come. So by going against the Chachamim, it's even worse than that. If it's an average Joe, if it's an average uh, guy that you're going against them, your average colleague, average you know person you know got uh, insulted and you're celebrating it, that's already a horrible punishment. But to go against the Chachamim even is, is even worse. So a person that goes against the Chachamim is not going to have an end any less worse than uh, J.C. Penny because it's truly the stupidest thing you can do. It, by going against the Chachamim, in essence, is the same thing as going against Hashem. It's no different. Same thing. Uh, so that's what people fail to understand and usually this stems from ego. That's why the Ramban said that the most important midah to work, to work on is to become humble. It's the opposite. To get yourself as far away from arrogance as possible. Um, and the uh, Hashem, one of the mitzvot that Hashem said to, to, the, to the sages is to build a fence around this fence. He has a fence, he has the laws. If you think that the current generation is getting too close to that fence, too close to danger, make an additional law that will protect them from it, to get them far from it. So in Musar, we have the same thing. The Ramban is telling you, listen, the worst possible trait you can have is being arrogant. The worst one, because that leads to anger, that leads to a lot of all the worst bad traits comes from, from arrogance. So to state that the fence around the fence, you could easily just not become angry. You know, do something less. No, no. The best thing you should do is become humble. Because that, if you're, you cannot be humble and arrogant at the same time. It's not possible. You know, so, so that, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the thing that people need to understand. And it's character traits that we have to work on. What else? Is there like a, I would say some kind of leniency or a, if somebody uh, cannot follow what God says or what the, the Torah says or what the uh, what, what the, the sages say? Like if they would say, like say uh, one of the 
something for Rosh Hashanah, which is like one day, and then um, and then they add uh, an extra day. So if somebody does not, you know, actually go with an extra day or knowingly or not knowingly, no, both either way. Oh, so knowingly or not knowingly is two different things. Yeah. If someone. <clears throat> If someone is going against the sages, not knowingly, he doesn't know, he doesn't, he hasn't learned the law. Depends why he doesn't learn the law. If he hasn't learned the law because the teachers lied to him, if he hasn't learned the law because he was secluded and he lived in Siberia, if he, uh, you know, something like that, then he's considered tinok shenishbai. He didn't know because he had what he had and it was limited to it. Like for example, certain keilot in Morocco or Yemen, they don't have a large part of the oral Torah. Because their tradition didn't have it, and therefore their, their main dependence is smaller parts of the oral Torah, but a bigger dependence on the written Torah. But that's been, that they have a certain level of excuse. They haven't advanced. They don't have televisions. They don't have cars. They're still a third world country. The rest of us don't have that excuse. The rest of us don't have that excuse. So unless we live in Yemen since we were born, uh, and, and, and so on, we don't have that excuse. Uh, somebody shipped you to, I don't know, Greenland and your next door neighbor is a, is a t- uh, polar bear. But the point is is that if the re- you didn't know, if a person didn't know as a result of he didn't study it because he was busy doing other things that are not part of the Torah, for example, he was watching football or he was uh, going out with his friends or he was doing things, we learn in Mishnah that a, uh, a person that does something, ac- you know, an accidental sin, but the accident is really not an accident. He ac- he's purposefully didn't study. He purposefully went to the bar instead of studying. He purposefully went to the concert instead of studying. He purposefully went to the baseball game instead of studying. On a regular basis, he just never got to studying. And because of that, he didn't learn the halacha. That accidental sin is judged in Shemaim as a purposeful sin. So if it's truly an accident, then it's an accident. If it's an accident because of desires, then it's not counted as an accident. Now, on the other hand, if he purposefully is going against the sages because he just doesn't feel like listening to them. Doesn't feel like listening to them. He says, listen, you said two days, I don't want to do two days. You said, uh, you know, uh, keep, uh, you know, kosher, has to be on meat, and, uh, you know, which is, uh, let's say, lamb and, uh, and beef, and also chicken, even though technically chicken is not meat. And you have to hold, you have to wait six hours on meat, just like you have to wait six hours on chicken. Even though chicken is not meat, but the sages said you have to keep six hours. Same, whatever you keep for meat, you have to keep for chicken. No more, no less. He said, no, no, I don't want to listen to the uh, sages because uh, it's not really meat. They added that. It's not Going against the sages, lose a lot of the... So there is no leniency in that regard if they do it on purpose. If it's accidental, it's a different story. The key is to not try is to is to avoid looking for shortcuts. We're not saying do above the law. No need to do above the law. Just don't need to be a chassid. You don't need to be a chassid. Just do what the law says. There's plenty of things to do. Plenty. You know, if there's a woman needs to work on herself, you know, and it's, she needs to be modest. She needs to be modest with speech. She needs to be modest with behavior. She needs to be modest with clothing. You know, if every time she talks, she has one of those voices where the whole neighborhood knows she's talking, she has to work on it. 
if she has the type of wardrobe where when she's walking, everyone knows that it's her, she has to work on it. If she has a, uh, you know, a, uh, a mouth that uh, is only com- in competition to truck drivers, she has to work on it. This is all part of modesty. And that's, it's, it's not just putting a long dress on and you're finished. Or putting a kisulash on and it's finished. Every mitzvah has details to it. Every mitzvah has details to it. And in order for us to fulfill any of the mitzvot, any one of them, it doesn't matter big or small, you have to humble yourself. Must humble yourself. And the reason why is because if it does not come from humility, it'll eventually break. If you're keeping Shabbat because it's convenient, eventually you're not going to keep Shabbat. Why? Because eventually it's not going to be convenient. Eventually you're going to have family, and a family's going to want to watch TV, and a family's going to want to go to the beach, and a family's going to want to do something that's the opposite of you, or the family's going to be annoying, and you're going to want to run away, you want to go drive to the beach yourself. You know, eventually it's not going to be convenient. It's going to happen one day. It's going to happen. I'm not wishing anyone bad. It just happens in life. Life happens. If you're keeping Shabbat because it's convenient, eventually you're not going to keep Shabbat. If you're keeping kosher because it's healthy, eventually you're not going to keep kosher. If you're keeping any of the mitzvot because it's rational, eventually you're not going to keep them. This is why Noah is called Ish Tzadik Tamim. A complete righteous person. Why complete righteous person? He didn't need explanation. Hashem said, I do. So yes, you could rationalize things. Yes, you can look for certain proofs of God through nature, through science, through rationale, and see different, you know, great things about His mitzvot. It's all good, but it's not the real reason. It's all, it's all good to know. It's all like a uh, seasoning. It's all like seasoning. But it's not the real reason. You don't eat the steak because of the seasoning. You eat the steak because of the meat. And if you're really hungry, even if there's no seasoning, you're still going to eat the damn steak. You understand? So, this is even more so. This is even more so. Why? Because if you know what's on the line, it doesn't matter if you like the mitzvah or not. It doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. It doesn't matter if you even understand it or not. It's just Rabbi Islami Salant. Rabbi Islami Salant said, in all Israel, he said, if one only knew the punishment for violating any mitzvah, forget just, I always talk about Shabbat, because Shabbat is the worst. He says any mitzvah, anything, anything. If anyone knew just the punishment for violating any mitzvah, they would not only do this mitzvah, but they would do this mitzvah even if they knew there's no reward for it. Because just not getting punished is enough of a reward. Do you understand what's, what's happening here? People, no, don't talk about punishment. No, don't talk scary. No, Our sages said that the punishment is so severe if we're just nonchalant and careless and we don't double check, and we just do whatever we feel like it, and we just do whatever we want, and we listen to this one sometimes, and that one sometimes, and we just make a salad out of Judaism. And sometimes it's Christianity, sometimes it's Judaism. Sometimes it's Esav, sometimes it's Yaakov. And we make mix and match, like it's a little puzzle with the wrong pieces. The sages say, even if there was no, even if there was no reward, 
if you actually knew the punishment for any of the mitzvot, not getting the punishment is enough. It's enough. That's why Job, that's why Job, who was a non-Jewish prophet, he said, and in the Gemara, says in the beginning of Abu Dazara, sorry, uh, yeah, beginning of Abu Dazara, it says that even if God were to destroy me, and I knew He's going to destroy me, I'd still serve Him. Even if it was a destroyer, I still serve him. Why? He knew the consequence. That's where Musar comes in. Musar is not necessarily knowing the details of Gainom. You don't necessarily need to know that there's angels and this and that. You don't need to know that stuff necessarily. Not everybody's at that level to know it. And even the people that know it usually can't handle it, so they're they're not affected by it. That's also another thing that I saw, and I was really uh, very, very, very intriguing uh, to read some of these things that the Baalei Musar said. In this case, it's uh, Rabbi Tzalami Salant. It's one of genius minds. Like they understand human nature to such an extent that if you actually just understand every just every line, just one line that they write, one line that they write, you understand a level that this is like not even human in comparison to us. So he says that certain people are so far so far removed from the truth that even if you tell them the punishment, nothing happens. Why? They're numb. They're numb. They're like stone. Nothing happens. Like it's like instead of shattering the stone to 50 pieces, nothing. They just die. Yeah. Tell them the details of Geno, Masechet Geno, punish. They, ah, ah, ooh, all that crazy, strangest things. And no, oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I guess that's right. Which also means, it says in the book, if you're already doing the law and you read some of the details of punishment and you're not petrified, also means you're numb too. Also means you're you're doing the mitzvot, but you're still numb a little bit. You're still numb. You know, you go to a dentist and you know they numb it. You don't feel anything, but then you don't feel anything for like a half a day. You're still numb a little bit. And only over time does the Shem open up, brain up a little bit. says, oh, wow, what I read two, three, four, five years ago, now it's finally hitting. How do you know? You're crying for no reason. You started crying because you just remembered something you learned five years ago and it finally hit home and you just started hysterical crying from fear. That's seen. You know, oh, okay, I'm, I'm less numb. It's the, the numbness is wearing off. The numbness is wearing off. Again, it says people, people think that being afraid of Hashem is a bad thing. But Shlomo HaMelech says, The beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem. It's something admirable. It's something admirable to, to acquire. Uh, it's not a uh, negative thing. So that's, that's the problem with, unfortunately, sometimes it's the teaching, sometimes it's the teacher, Sometimes it's the student, sometimes it's the world around the student. Either way, none of them will be good excuses in Shemaim. In the Beddin of Shemaim, each one of us is going to have nothing to say. Because they're already in all the answers. And I tell you, okay, you were given a brain? Yes, check. Brain and eyes? Check. Ears? Check. Lips? Check. Teeth? Check. Tongue? Check. Body that works? Check. Why don't you fulfill the will of Hashem? Oh, I, I was busy. With what? 
making money. Okay, and Rambam was also busy making money. Oh, I was uh, busy, uh, you know, all the girls wanted to go after me. Okay. Yosef HaTzadik. Every woman in the world wanted to go after him, including the most beautiful women in the world. Oh, I, was, uh, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. Okay. Hillel Azaken. Hillel Azaken sacrificed his life just for one seal Torah by laying on top of the Beknesset to hear uh, the Shmayan Aftalyon give a seal Torah. He sacrificed his life. The snow was on top of him the whole night, and he almost died just for one single shield Torah because he couldn't afford to pay the doorman to go into the shield Torah. He was as poor as it gets. No? Well, what other excuses you have? Oh, I, uh, you know, I, uh, it was too hard for me. It was a, uh, I knew the truth, but it was too hard for me to make the sacrifice. I'm going to tell you guys a story that I never said the story before, but it's a story I've, I've been thinking about telling the story for a while, but it's a, uh, I don't know. Honestly, this story, some of you know it, some of you don't. But I think about the story all the time. I talked about the story with my wife today, yesterday, something like that. We're still so amazed. And not necessarily just amazed at the person, but amazed at how little excuses any of us have in Shemaim. Simply because this person exists. Don't ask who, why, when, it doesn't make a difference. Now, each one of us wake up in the morning with a list full of excuses. Each one of us. Each one of us wakes up in the morning with a list full of excuses of why we don't want to wake up early, why we don't want to go to the Beknesset, why we don't want to pray, why we don't want to do what Hashem says, why we, we all have excuses of why we can't do it, why it's too much, why I can't cover my hair, why can't be modest, why can't stop eating too much, why can't, uh, you know, stop being cheap, why can't this, why can't that, all these horrible, terrible character traits that are the opposite of the will of Hashem. All of us have a list of excuses. People that want to convert, they, as soon as they get a few hurdles, a few hurdles. Oh, the rabbis rejected me. Oh, the kilah rejected me. Oh, I, you know, they, it took too long. Oh, it was too hard. Oh, it was too expensive. Oh, I couldn't move to the neighborhood. They lose steam. Jews, natural born Jews. Oh, the rabbi was bad. Oh, it was too expensive to move to a good neighborhood. Oh, this, oh, that. I mean, we have so many excuses that if each one of us, at least myself, I wrote all my excuses on a piece of paper, the world would end and I wouldn't have enough time to write the rest of my excuses, the amount of excuses that I've had in my life. But you know what? One person that I know, Baruch Hashem happens to be my student, kills all of my excuses. Why? This person, she saw the truth. Saw the truth. But she's not like you and me. Well, we see the truth. Oh, B'Zal Hashem will do tshuva. Yeah, okay, I'll take Shabbat on next week and next year and next month. And this person saw the truth. The world changed. What changed? Okay, that means I saw the truth. I need to be a Jew now. She wasn't born Jewish. I need to be a Jew. Why? Because that's the truth. Yeah, but you don't have to. You can just, I mean, you don't have to be a Jew. You can just, you can be a righteous guy and you have a lot of No, 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 I have to. Okay, but you have to understand, you're married. You're married almost 20 years. Uh, maybe maybe uh, your, your husband maybe he doesn't want to do it. Maybe he doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you break up the marriage. You, uh, out of your mind, that's not necessarily uh, the right thing or the wrong thing. Who knows? Uh, it doesn't make a difference. Well, you have kids. 
you five kids. You have five kids. I mean, maybe the kids don't want to do it. It doesn't make a difference. What do you mean it doesn't make a difference? Each one of us wouldn't be able to pass one of these tests. This person left everything. Husband. Everything. Why? To have what all of us take for granted. Now we go up to Shammai and we're going to say, hey, you, you didn't want to wake up on time? Or you, you didn't want to uh, um, keep Shabbat? Or you, what, it was harder for you than this person that gave up a marriage with five kids, with the family, with the everything? You, you did, it was more for you. Well, waking up on time was more for you. Or learning Torah was more for you. They get, she gave up everything in the world. Everything in the world with a smile on her face. With a smile on her face. She gave up everything. But you know, it's, hard, it's tough for you to learn Torah more than uh, an hour a day. It's tough for you. It's tough for you to cover your hair. It's tough for you. She gave up everything. She covers everything. Mamash, unbelievable. But for you, it's tough. You go up to Shemaim and tell you, oh, this is the example. There's a Hillel, there's a, uh, there's Yosef at Sadiq. Look at these righteous converts. They don't even have to convert, but they not only convert, they leave everything. This is the biggest kitrug on everyone. Jews and the ones that want to be Jews. Why? You don't have any more excuses. You're married, your kids, your house, your money, your whatever. No, there's people out there. I'm telling you, there's people out there willing to give up everything. And I've done it. I've done it. What excuse you have? Oh, it's hard. It's harder than that? It's harder than giving up you know, marriage? 17 years? Harder? It's harder than giving up a marriage? It's harder than giving up, uh, you know, you're not going to necessarily be able to celebrate the holidays with the kids. Your kids. It's not somebody else's kids. It's harder? It's harder than changing your whole life? All of a sudden, you go from this to this. It's harder than that. You don't have any excuses. Nothing. Zero. Zero excuses. And Shemaim, they will judge you based on this person. They're not going to judge you against Moshe Rabbeinu. They're not going to judge you against Rabbi Akiva. They're not going to judge you against uh, uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. They're not going to judge you against them. They're going to judge you against a person just like you. Right here. You? Okay. Look. Now what? Now what excuse do you have? What'd you give up? Your uh, your PlayStation? What'd you give up? Your one percent of your salary? Once in a while, you bought three CDs. What'd you give up? That's how you know you're full of it. That's how I know I'm full of it. Why? You haven't done that. You haven't done. That. You haven't given up anything in comparison. Nothing. Nothing in comparison. And that's the thing. That's what you're going to be compared to. You're not going to be compared to things from previous generations. You can't be compared. It's not a comparison. It's a different species. But the reality is there's a different species in our generations too. There's certain people that make sacrifices that make you and I look like we're completely secular. Do you understand? So, this too will wake us all up and start realize enough with the excuses. Enough. Enough with the stories and excuses. Not going to work anyway. It's not going to work. Bezat Hashem, Hashem will have mercy on us, patience with us, and Bezat Hashem, let us have enough time to do tshuva. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.